Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. And then my mind was kind of like, you know, the head in the fishbowl. But it takes me into the bathroom and says, this is how you brush your teeth. Brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat. But there were two girls, and it was like, you'll have to give us a ride. You can't fill us, though. He can't refuse us. He'll let us in his car. The thoughts were all alone in this empty void. You know, the head in the fishbowl. This doesn't look right. They got close enough where he said he could see, you know, their eyes and, and how intelligent they seem. This doesn't look right. He's gremlin-type creatures. This doesn't look right. No pupils, no iris. Three fingers. Three long fingers. And this is when the mental torture is in. And then it was eerily quiet. Hello, guys. Welcome to episode 200.5 of Conspiranormal. This is your host, Adam, all by my lonesome because it is rather late at night. I have some uh, fellow night owls with me on the line. Um, Starting off this episode 200.5 with uh, who I like to call the uh, upstate New York or the Ithaca contingent, (laughs) though one isn't exactly in in Ithaca. But uh, I have Peter Robbins on the line with me. Good evening, Adam. Good evening, Peter. It's good to have you back. Even, Good to be back. Even though just for kind of a short time. And mm-hmm. uh, Soraya, who really needs no introduction. Oh. Everybody should know who, if I say Soraya, everybody should know who that is. <laughs> Not to be confused with the other Sorayas. Right, right, right. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to have you, gentlemen. Um, how's the how's the weather up there in upstate New York? Hmm, behaving itself, I'd say. Yeah, better than it was. 
Yeah, I heard it was pretty. Uh, it was a, a lot, a big blizzard up there. Uh, it wasn't really so much a blizzard; it was just really cold. I mean, we got a little bit of snow, yeah, but not for up here, here. It wasn't that bad. It was. Uh, we we got a lot of snow. Well, a lot of snow for us is like two inches. So I think I... that just that just shuts the city down. For you guys that still go to go to school weather. Oh, yeah, no. that's 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 nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and the the whole thing about uh, Sarai, you actually living in Ithaca, that's kind of a misnomer. Because yeah. when I left the radio, the radio station is in Ithaca. <laughs> when I left Peter's house to go to your house, you told me it's about thirty minutes away, and I'm like slowly have like I'm in the country. Although mm-hmm. I did I did get to see the uh, I did get Stars. to see the Milky Way. That was. Very awesome. See, I don't even get to see that here in Tennessee anymore. So yeah. that was special. We do have, uh, especially out here, uh, times when the ambient light is next to nothing. So, uh, you know, those of us that, you know, uh, like me who grew up in a city or uh, anybody in a regulation-sized town with, with lights and things, um, it is a novelty out here, I must say. You're absolutely right. Well, being from New York City, Peter, when was the first time that you ever saw like the Milky Way like that? How was your like first time and your impression of it? Oh, good question. Um, it might have been on um, you know a summer holiday or something. Um, I, I don't remember. Yeah, it's it, for me. It was that moment because I. And to be in upstate New York, I figured that that would be like a desert trip thing. Mm. <laughs> I didn't even get well. to, I didn't even get to see that in Roswell when I was there. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Soraya, what you, how, how's everything going? What you, what have you been up to, sir? Uh, well, we just did our five year anniversary show. Yeah, that's right. I got you beat by yeah. a year in in time. I, I'm pretty sure I have more episodes though. You think so? Oh yeah, yeah. I I had. Oh uh, uh, yeah, you're like bound to. Yeah, because I do two or three a week. Yeah, that's true. Good point. I do at least about Min- one minimum a week. of two a week. So yeah, we, we got um, the round tables yeah, we, I, and all that. Yeah, and the the movie review shows and the listener story shows and so yeah, there's, there's a bunch of stuff. We haven't done any movie review shows in a while. No, I just did one with Josh. I haven't put up yet. Oh, uh, you guys are yeah. you guys are holding back on me, huh? Well, you're welcome to join us whenever. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. I would absolutely love to. Um, uh, but yeah, so it was the fifth anniversary. We started uh, where the road go on um, January twenty sixth, twenty thirteen. Wow. Yeah, and uh, I had back Aaron Gullius and Mike Cleland to do the UFO history for 2017. And somehow we fit it into 90 minutes with the two of them. And I don't know how that happened, but it worked. <laughs> What's the, how many, how many parts is that was, did that series end up being? I have not the faintest idea, like <laughs> 13 or something. Wow. Have you ever heard any of those, Peter? No. That was actually well, the first. The first. Where did the road go? I ever heard was one of those shows. I don't think I did. Uh, we did eleven. Eleven parts. So now this one would be part twelve. Wow. Yeah. It was. It was supposed to be one show. We were just going to cover UFO history in one show, and you know neither of them are, are it was up rather on the ambitious, Soraya. 
Yeah, well, neither of them are up on the ancient alien stuff or anything, but still, just going through the pre-20th century stuff took most of a show, and I was like, oh, so we can squeeze the 20th century into 20 minutes, or you guys can come back. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, the first episode I ever heard was one of those. It was the one in the 80s. Yeah. I was, uh, at the time, we were both on the, uh, and we're both on a couple of networks now, but... IPBN, whatever happened to that? That was uh, Rocky Stucci's um, network and uh, Scotty Roberts. Yeah. I just, I was checking to see when he was playing my show and I started listening to this show on there and I'm like, this is, this is really good. These guys are right up my alley. And so I I looked it up and uh, I think I've missed a few of the episodes after that, but I think I've, I've listened pretty religiously since 2015. So, nice. So every every week, favorite podcast right now. <laughs> well, thank is, you. Is Where did the road go? And I'm happy to be a part of it when I when I can be. It's 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 difficult sometimes to get away and plus doing my own. Yeah. But, uh, I yeah re- really enjoy it. Any weird experiences that you've been having? Me? Yeah. Uh, Out I don't of think all so. the weird experiences, nothing. There's I don't, nothing I don't think report. anything recently. No. He brings um, on the people with weird experiences. <laughs> I, I I think the last weird experience I had was just some weird sleep stuff. Yeah. You know, before that, it was the cuckoo bubble. Right. And that was back in the summer sometimes. So, yeah, lately it's been pretty quiet. You still working on that book? Well, if you mean by working on not actually progressing anywhere, then yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's how it goes, huh? <laughs> there there are technically two books and neither of them have had any progress in a while. Right, right. Real life does intercede sometimes. Yes. Who was the first guest on Where Did the Road Go? Um Jim Elvich. The guy who wrote The Universe Solved, which is a book on the universe as virtual reality. Hmm. He was also a Cornell graduate, so I figured that was perfect, being that we're right next to Cornell University, where the radio station is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I got kind of a, t- a little bit of a tour of that, and, and Peter took me around the next day. Those those hills over there, man, those hills are killer. <laughs> yes, yeah. they are. It's true. Something else. Well, Peter, what have you been working on lately? What's... Uh... What's new in, 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 in your world as far as research? Well, um, for starters, this time of year, the end of the year before, I'm doing my best to uh, look for solicit speaking jobs for this year, um, continuing to work away on several long-term research projects, and one that I, I began, gosh, uh, several decades ago that comes back in different forms. Um, I guess because of a pronounced interest in the subject, it has to do with the extraordinary life and strange death of our first Secretary of Defense, James Forrestal. Mm -hmm. And um, years ago, I began to research his story for a number of reasons. He um, was sworn in as Secretary of Defense a matter of eight, nine weeks after Roswell, and um, uh, I'm convinced that the weight 
of the information that he held uh, right up there with Truman helped to um, create a situation where he really cracked under the strain. And history tells us, um, as some of your listeners know who have heard my talks on him or read articles that I've written about him, that um, he committed suicide um, while being treated for uh, depression in May of 1949. Um, Over the years, partly as an intellectual exercise, partly because it seems uh, one more example of um, history being written by the winners, um, we Americans understand that, um, you know, he, he suffered under the equivalent of what we would now call post-traumatic stress disorder, mm-hmm. and it ate him up, and he went out the window. But, in fact, I think I've been able to establish um, in legal proof terminology um, that he was, in fact, murdered and forced out of uh, the window that he perished from in the Bethesda Naval Hospital in Maryland uh, in 1949. And not that I've added a huge amount to my research or my understanding of Forrestal, but um, last year, uh, one of many thoughts that was going through my head was people like me, um, you know, I'll do X number of talks a year in really small venues, some of them large venues, everything from a, a major conference to a, a library talk. But more often than not, you know, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. Uh, the audiences that I tend to draw and people like me, um, especially at a UFO conference, for goodness sake, are people that are already interested in the subject or uh, uh, obsessed with it, have had experiences, um, but... They're, they're not there because they don't take it seriously, although occasionally you do find people who challenge themselves in those kind of forums. Um, to cut to the chase, though, I was thinking more and more about how can I take some of the information that um, you know grounds us in, in a very real uh, post-war UFO cover-up beginning right after World War II and bring it to a wider audience. Uh, obviously, film is the major medium in our time and for decades before, and countless films have been done somehow locked into the UFO-related theme, everything from the painfully amateurish and embarrassingly hysterical <laughs> to overtly terrible films to terrific moving films, ones that... Um, we've grown up with or know about or, um, you know, um, help to establish the public dialogue. All well and good. Um, I fell in love with the theater when I was a kid, uh, lucky enough to go to see wonderful plays in New York City regularly. Did my high school plays, thought about studying to be an actor, and didn't. Uh, instead went into the visual arts, but um, ultimately ended up um, doing uh, management work with a wonderful repertory company primarily in New York City and studied acting as a result of it, not to be an actor, but because I love the craft and it's amazing to watch these people learn 
these extraordinary skills that often uh, move us tremendously in the middle of the night or, you know, all by ourselves in a theater or in front of a television or a computer screen. All this leading to the following thought. Um, I did a fair amount of rewriting and thought perhaps there's a place, um, not if not quite in the theater, but out of the conference hall, where I could take the material that I would normally use to present a talk, you know, with a uh, PowerPoint show uh, illustrating it, and turn it into um, an illustrated dramatic reading. And that's what I've done. I'm not sure exactly where it's going. It's possible to direct something like that into an actual theatrical production. At this point, it is a reading by myself or an actor um, in two parts, um, basically laying out the life and death of this man in uh, completely 100% fully authentic terms, everything backed up by documentation, um, but in the dramatic way it deserves. Um, James Forrestal, if he hadn't been a real person, um, could have been a character created by F. Scott Fitzgerald. He, his actual life parallels that of the fictional um, Jay Gadsby. Uh, poor kid came from a uh, small town in upstate New York and emerged as a giant of Wall Street, um, a, a friend and confidant of the ultra-famous, um, an advisor to President Roosevelt, Assistant Secretary of Navy, Secretary of Navy, the man who created a modern defense establishment was our first Secretary of Defense. And again, depending on what one believes when the evidence is laid out, either um, tragically died a suicide uh, at his own hand, by his own hand, or um, was forced out of a window to put an end to him, um, I, I think that the primary impetus being in 1949, um, this was the ultimate secret, the beginning of the national security state we live in. And here was an alpha male, um, seemingly unbreakable, uh, courageous, patriotic, uh, a true contributor to our winning World War II, ultimate team player who had this breakdown. And, you know, of course people had breakdowns back then, but I guess the easiest way to think of it is in 1949, probably almost no one knew anyone who had ever been in what we would call any kind of therapy, nor had they been. Now, nobody lives their life not knowing people who have... Uh, not been in therapy um, or themselves or family members. And this man possessed secrets that just couldn't be risked um, getting out there. And when he was institutionalized, ultimately he began to respond to the prescribed treatments of the time for uh, deep depression and began to get his will to live back. 
unfortunately, that made it necessary to end his life for him uh, rather than have him take his life, which would have been what was hoped and expected by those very close to Truman. And in fact, he did try to end his life several times in those few dark days before he was institutionalized. Um, I'm basically talking in a somewhat circuitous way here because um, as I developed it as a spoken piece, it also occurred to me it was really related very directly to old-fashioned radio plays where um, you either have an actor or actors on the radio, uh, again, in their case, I'm usually dealing with fiction as opposed to nonfiction. But a good story is a good story. And so I actually have recorded it now in two parts. The first part, which was played tonight on our friend um, Ryan Sprague's podcast. Oh, really? Okay. Yep, that was played tonight for the first time. And part two will be played next Monday. Uh, on his podcast, and we'll see what the response is. I'm going to have to uh, listen to that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, again, it, it wasn't you know just some huge original break. I took existing material I developed over the years, but I, I think it comes back to um, an issue that is somewhat frustrating in in UFO studies right now, which is how do we break out of speaking to each other? and speak to a wider audience and assist people out there in beginning to take this subject more seriously and in the process help to build what I would call a, um, a tipping point, a, a critical mass in society. We're certainly a good distance from it, and a lot of us forget that we really don't represent a huge proportion of society today, uh, again, because we tend to speak with each other a lot and, um, you know, uh, stay ultra-focused on the subject to a great degree, um, I think we lose sight of the challenge, and a lot of people, once again, feel disclosures right around the corner. I am not one of them. I think we still have a long way to go, and I, I don't see our government as standing in the wings waiting, waiting to... Uh, give up its uh, related secrets in this area of study. I was, how do you feel? I haven't asked you, Peter and uh, Soraya, feel free to jump in any time on this. Uh, we were, well, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the whole Tom DeLonge, this, these sure. revelations that have happened, uh, the New York times, um, you know, Soraya and I talked a little bit about this back when it came out. And uh, Soraya actually did like a you did like a show the the day it came out. <laughs> oh, right. yeah, very timely. So I, I'm just curious what your thoughts on all that is, Peter. Do you think that it's that it's gonna the UFO subject is gonna be taken much more seriously now, or do you think that it's going to be it's just kind of gonna go away, and this is just kind of like a the, the normal cycle of this material. Hmm. Well, um, number one, speaking from the point of view of being a uh, optimist, I hope for the best. Um, I've never heard anything terrible or bad about the character of Tom DeLong. He seems extremely sincere. Uh, I'm not going to hold it against him that 
in terms that most of us understand, he's wealthy and famous, and, and I, I wish him well. And, you know, he, he came up through the world of pop music, Blink-182, um, and one way or the other has gotten deeply involved in this subject. Um, we've seen well-known people come forward over the decades and have the courage to take the subject seriously. Um, Tom and the people associated with him seem to have taken it one step further in creating um, what sounds like both a business opportunity and um, a way to bring more attention to this subject. Uh, and there is no question in my mind that because he is, you know, and I, I mean the term uh, respectfully, a pop star, um, who, because of his, you know, notoriety, his talent, um, had an audience. And now, um, I would guess a respectable number of people in that audience who maybe never really thought about the subject at hand or gave two craps about it if they did, think, wow, uh, maybe there is something to this. And because of this guy, um, I'm now educating myself a bit. Now, educating oneself relative to information available on the Internet um, is a double-edged sword, <laughs> sure. uh, as we know. Um, and one Unless that, you're listening to Conspiracy or more, where did the road go? Then it's okay. Yes, and um, you can <laughs> actually uh, buy sections of the Brooklyn Bridge or the moon <laughs> oh. uh, on the Internet, and who's to say you can't? I thought um, we never went to the moon. Well, ye of little faith, for goodness sakes. Um, <laughs> I, again, I hope for the best. The um, Times article that you're referring to goes back uh, a month and a half or so. One of the writers uh, was Leslie Kane, one of the most respected people in our field, who um, was a real, genuine, full-scale, trained, grown-up, actual journalist when she uh, connected many years ago with Bud Hopkins to interview him and got very involved in um, this subject. Um, essentially, what she and the other reporters were able to do was establish that, you know, for those of us that follow the subject, ho-hum, um, the Pentagon had a secret study group looking at the subject of UFOs. Um, what else is new? Um, but that was a wake-up call to a number of people that found it shocking, that thought, wait a minute, if this is true, then there were half-intelligent people that took this seriously. And, you know, it might have been the party that I support or the other party, but um, I'm interested. And if the New York Times writes a front-page article on this, I'm all the more interested. Um, again, most of what's happened with it has been it's gone to the wink-wink, nudge-nudge crowd who, you know, will just say one more thing that, you know, the military studied and didn't get any information on. And most people don't have the time, patience, or inclination to look at it on their own. And so it's one more front-page New York Times story that could have gone somewhere that, well, you know, again, for people like us, it's a big deal, and it's one of the major topics right now, and what's spinning off of it or what isn't 
spinning off of it. Um, I I don't think this is going to be the thing that pushes things over the edge, and I I don't think the fact that we have a a change of administration is making a damn bit of difference. Really, I I think the likelihood of Donald Trump releasing UFO-related material is probably about the same as it was with Barack Obama. And for all of her bravado and suggestions, would Hillary Clinton, if elected, had um, released any of this information? You know, take your best guess and then take that with a grain of salt. Yeah, I guess they were hoping that Podesta would encourage that. Uh, Soraya, so like Peter said, you know, it's been a month and a half now. I don't really think my opinion on it has changed at all. I think it was a big deal to UFO people. I think the general public didn't really notice. Um, It became more of a joke later on where people were saying, you know, 2017 was so messed up that the the government said UFOs are real and no one cares. But it's also, you know, it it wasn't – Mike Hughes made a great point that they took it seriously. And that caused other people to take it seriously. Well, and that was, was very good. excited about it. Yes. Yeah. But as far as like long-term things, I don't think it was that big of a deal. They didn't really reveal anything. We didn't already know a bunch of people focused in on the materials, but we've been collecting materials from UFOs since the beginning. Yeah. Um, you know, Peter has dirt. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> that you've had analyzed. I mean, this stuff, it's nothing new, really. It, it would have been new if it got a bigger audience, to the, a bigger mainstream audience than it did, I think. And nothing's happened since. So we'll see what happens this year. But, I mean, it's been a month and a half, and nothing has followed it. Yeah. Right. And I feel with Tom DeLong, I think he's just going to get Benowitz. I really do. Or just pushed to the side, which already kind of seems like that's what has happened, especially after the Joe Rogan interview. Joe Rogan thing, yeah, that was that was a disaster. That was embarrassing. <laughs> Did yeah. you ever see that, Peter? Did you ever watch that or no. listen to that? Uh, it, it's horrible. He's basically talking, you know, he's pulling up random YouTube videos of, as if everything on YouTube is real. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Yeah. It definitely did not do them any favors whatsoever. Yeah, I, I think sometimes enthusiasm can simply, uh, it, it can be its own worst enemy at times because it pushes you to uh, simply become a cheerleader for things that on the surface uh, have excited you, but with any real analysis fall apart rather than uh, something more scholarly and, and well-constructed or well-researched. Yeah. And, and you know, when you got the footage there that they released, which had, had been released before, it's not even like they pulled new footage out. They, they just gave it a little context. And, you know, it's interesting, but it still doesn't tell us anything. You know, it's like, oh, they have something really odd they're following on here. It could be anything from secret... Um, craft that we've made to an actual other intelligence yeah but that video doesn't tell us that (laughs) peter does it make you suspicious that bigelow is part of this because it does me i don't know um you know there are people who um historically seem to assume the positions of uh chess masters the ones who are moving the pieces quietly in the background or are the major players 
Um, at this point, I don't know. It's all part of uh, the soap opera, of um, uh, the drama that is um, UFO studies and ascribing, you know, evil machinations or uh, being a power broker is, it's almost like a status symbol. Um, I don't know. I think the, the, the people who are the ones who are really affecting things um, are the ones whose names we never know, yep. whose faces we never see, who aren't elected, but are there generation after generation um, affecting history, you know, from powerful concealed positions, so to say. Um, this continues on more than 70 years now as the greatest distraction and sideshow in post-war history. Um, many of us no longer have what I would call um, the luxury of disbelief. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you are a, an experiencer, um, a sighting witness, or an abductee. It means that you have studied this to such a degree uh, and seen um, or handled or been exposed to or researched evidences that are as real and compelling especially when triangulated with other evidences regarding the same cases or individuals um, that could get somebody hanged in a felony case if such matters, you know, were dealt with in our courts of law. Um, I, I, I wonder sometimes if um, all of this is going to stay in the netherworld that it's in to one degree or another until they simply get tired of or change their strategy uh, in their relationship with us. And when I say they, I mean that myriad of other intelligences uh, whose origins we can only make educated guesses about, mm -hmm. who either have existed right by us a dimension or two ways since time immemorial, or who come and go with impunity um, more recently, or are, you know, us in a million years, or, or, or. Um, I'm not nearly as interested in those profound answers to those profound questions anymore, because I know I'll never get them, um, unless I want to simply become a believer and follow, you know, the great teachings of, um, say, a Stephen Greer, who will tell me that all aliens are good, right. and give me the number of races that are visiting the Earth. And, you know, that's not right. Um, those numbers can't be known, and anybody that says they do know them is a charlatan, a believer, um, misinformed, um, longing to, you know, uh, be at the center of the matrix, what have you. Um, we're all students in this, and we're all, you know, doing our best to feel our way along and get the basics down. Yeah. But we know we're not alone. Very well said, Peter. I, I do yes. find it. I do find it interesting that the narrative is changing somewhat in this latest release of all this information. 
that on the in the press and the media they were they were saying that it, you know this could be an interdimensional thing. It's almost like the extraterrestrial thing is kind of being phased out and they're bringing something else in. <laughs> And I find that very, I, I, you make a very good point, but, yeah. you know, Jacques Vallée um, is, is sort of the godfather right, of right. Oh, um, yeah. this whole area of study, and in a way is going through a wonderful resurgence the last couple of years, especially with yeah. um, um, younger uh, investigators and writers and authors on the subject, who we all make a, a point of challenging the established order of our time. Um, I just think it's kind of amusing that what used to be the most radical idea imaginable, that they come from is now considered passé. And, I mean, you know, let's lighten up here. Um, We're probably, again, dealing with a myriad of intelligences that, as likely could come from Alpha Centauri as a wormhole, as from one dimension over or from the center of the Earth, um, or, you know, move around between those spaces. Um, but to chuck out the idea that um, none of the UFO phenomena, the intelligence behind them, happen to be from other solar systems, universes, galaxies, what have you, I think is laughable. Uh, as much so as saying it's impossible, you know, okay, I, I buy outer space, but another dimension, haha, that's as silly as it can be. You know, <laughs> yeah. Let's see what you're we're saying. all <laughs> totally lost in this. <laughs> and, you know, it's a matter of what we believe, what we're passionate about, what our longings are, what our fears are, what our pet theory is. Um, or just keeping a very open mind and rolling with it and keeping your sense of humor, trying to add to our body of knowledge, but, you know, not by getting silly on yourself and just mechanical in your thinking. Yeah. Well said, Peter. What were you going to say, Soraya? I'm sorry. I, jumped I, didn't, I, I didn't think I, I was going to say anything. <laughs> yeah, I, like, I cut that guy off like nobody's business. <laughs> <laughs> you, you cut me. Apparently, you cut me off so much that I didn't even know there were words there. <laughs> uh, well, uh, gentlemen, what's uh, what's next for you guys, uh, Sarai? We'll start with you. Um, I don't know. Um, <laughs> doing what I'm doing, really. Uh, uh, the next main interview I have coming up is Shirley Black, who I talked to a couple of years ago. Uh, multiple near-death experiences, which has caused her to have a lot of very anomalous experiences in her life after the fact. Uh, she's been tested pretty thoroughly. And when I had her on the first time, we talked about her near-death experiences and stuff. We didn't get to the testing. Since then, she's written a book. I don't know if it's actually published or not yet, but uh, fascinating stuff. I mean, really, really fascinating stuff. So that, as far as the show goes, that's that's pretty much as far out as I'm planned. You going to go to any conferences, Soraya? Not that I'm aware of. You could probably be in high demand. Uh, well, you know, I did Fort Fest. Um, <laughs> now, and we were at Albat, Albat which day? Yeah. Albat which? Yeah. yeah. Albat So you never know. If it's around here, possibly. Okay. And if I'm not mistaken, Peter, there's a couple in upstate New York, right? Yeah. Well, year? we've got the. Um, uh, 
the Pine Bush, New York, uh, UFO Festival and Conference coming at us for, is it the fourth or the fifth year? But that is coming up um, this spring, um, May 20th. And possibility. Um, I'm not sure of, but um, uh, thank goodness we do have this one locked down now because we have bloody few conferences here in the Northeast and we'd like to have more. I'd like to have some here in the Southeast. Yeah. Oh, be nice. Uh, Peter, what's, uh, what's next for you? And I'm, I'm sure that you're going to be at some conferences this year as well. You bet. Um, right now I'm gearing up for um, a trip to Chicago next month, uh, meet with some colleagues there. But what's getting me there is um, um, a non-UFO-related uh, writing job. I get them occasionally. And um, March, I will be heading up to beautiful Rochester, New York, where I visit a couple of times a year um, to give a talk there for one of the best regional um, UFO groups I'm aware of, the meetup group uh, there. Uh, and then looking more toward um, the summer, toward Roswell, uh, I'll be speaking in Scandinavia, possibly in England. Oh, nice. I'm hoping hopeful about returning to Japan this year, if that works out, um, getting back out west again, and uh, this autumn we have a, a cluster of, of talks, uh, of conferences up in New England. I'll be uh, uh, promoting them uh, on my uh, Facebook page and um, website as we move forward, um, but right now also I'm just trying to enjoy you know, real life with my dad, uh, how beautiful the winter really is up here, all things considered. Um, get in some reading. I've been trying to um, get into uh, a much more regular reading habit again, not just because I, I love reading and don't get to do much of it for pleasure, like most of us, but also I um, just want to reset my sails a bit as a writer as I work away uh, on adapting um, conference papers, articles, columns, commentaries that I've done over the years for a new book that will be out later this year, um, um, compendium of different writings that I've done, and um, you know, um, be here now, as we used to say in the 60s. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And as far as getting all your conferences up there on online, you're uh your list you'll have to get your webmaster to do that yes here, well here he's somewhere yeah. around here yeah somewhere. I, uh, I, I know he occasionally uh you know is taken and um when he's returned then we get stuff done <laughs> but yeah he's a busy guy all right gentlemen thank you so much for uh, helping me celebrate the 200th episode uh stay on the line for me uh you guys will be back with uh another guest on good spirit normal well, listen, congratulations and good for you. And Soraya, without guys like you two, I mean, I'd be sitting home watching television tonight. Um, <laughs> can both of you continue to do the good work that you're doing? And again, congratulations on this 200th show. Thank you yeah. so much, Peter. And thank you, you bet, so Adam. much, Soraya. All right, guys, we'll be back.
Hello, everybody. Welcome back to episode 200.5. This is Adam, again, all by my lonesome in Studio B. And on the line, I have someone that uh, has been a great guest for me. Um, actually, I was the first podcast that this person had ever been on. And I have uh, used this person as kind of like my UFO consultant over the last year and a half or two years or so. And that's Chris Wolford. Welcome back, Chris. Hello, Adam. How are you? Good. I hear a dog in the background. Yeah. I'm getting quiet down. Getting barking like crazy, man. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, So we talked back in not too long ago, back in December. Mm -hmm. And that was when the the whole rigmarole was going on about the Mm -hmm. New York Times and all that, and, and you were very excited yeah. about it at the time. I believe that mm-hmm. you probably still are. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, I just finished talking about that with a little bit about with that with uh, Soraya and with Peter Robbins. And so, what's the update? Since you're kind of like the person that the I big, come to for this. The big update is people like the SCU, the Scientific Coalition for Ufology, the one that's the breakoff group from MUFON with Robert Powell. He found FOA to try to figure out that uh, uh, advanced aerial threat from threat detection uh, program. That's not what it's called. And I had this from two sources. One I can name, one I cannot, because they're from to the stars. Um, Jimmy Corbell told me verbatim, we will never get the true chain of custody of a... The name of the program, because it's still ongoing, so that means it's classified. So you will never get that. So people like John Greenwald, who got in an argument with me the other day on Facebook, I really didn't want to get an argument. I, I do like John Greenwald. He's done great work in the past. He's saying that, yes, we will. They're just stalling, or he's got to figure out. I'm like, you're wasting your time, and you're wasting your money. You're not going to get that. They're not going to give it out. It's kind of like Mirage Ben. They'll give you a little bit, the little chew, a little bit to chew on, and get people to realize that the, the government is doing this. But they're not going to give you the correct name because it's still classified. And then there's a uh, Jack Brewer and I have been trading Twitter messages back and forth. Oh, excellent. Now he's gotten a little bit. I think he has also. Uh, filed FOA, but I told him, I said, it may not come back at all. You may not get anything. We'll see. He was kind of bummed out that that could be the case, and then when I told him that, that, that that's probably not the right name or the true name, he was like, well, then, you know, we have to be wary of what they're pushing. And I, I said, I agree. I still, even though I'm kind of, I guess, an apologist for this group, I still have in the back of my mind that this is an op. Now, I've said this when I was the last time on with Sarai and you, that I thought this was possibly to be put in the lap of Donald Trump Mm -hmm. and have all the stuff come out and have him handle it. And obviously... He'll mishandle it because he's a buffoon. <laughs> but 
He's the greatest That's, president ever, Chris. I don't know what you're talking well, about. Sure, sure. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, dear leader. I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, no, seriously, because it goes back to my original uh, like research. I find this also fascinating. I was talking to my brother-in-law yesterday about all the people who are from To the Stars Academy, whether it be the advisors or people that you don't hear about, they're all... And I don't care whether you're the left or the right, doesn't really matter because they're all the same. Um, but they're all Democratic leaning. And they all, in the lead up to the election or even during the election, like Tom DeLon or uh, Gary Nolan or uh, some of these other guys, um, they are all posting stuff on social media saying Trump's bad, he's going to be bad. And then when he became president, he's a piece of crap. Blah, 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 there's Russian collusion, blah, 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 you know. And I just get the sense that, now, if Hillary had won, maybe we wouldn't even be talking about Tom DeLong. I don't know. I can't say for sure. Yeah. It was leaning that way, possibly, but maybe it would have turned out to be nothing. Maybe this is just this op to, like I said, to put it in his lap and then have him have to deal with it. Because I know for a fact here in the next couple of weeks, maybe even less than a couple of weeks, we're going to get another New York Times, Washington Post, Political and Huffington Post piece. I know that's coming. Okay, let's we know also, that we're recording this on January 31st. Uh, yeah, We're not going to have this out till after the 200th episode drops, so that's probably, gonna, probably by the time this episode comes out, probably two or three weeks so, will have gone past, so... Be interesting to see. Well, maybe that'd be perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know that George Knapp just interviewed Louis Alzando. Now, that's not been aired, but I do know the contents of that interview. And Alzando goes on to say, this program's still going on. Okay. Even though he kind of said that the funding ended in 2012, which that is kind of, it's wishy washy. There was an NPR interview he had done where he said, no, it ended really in 2015. Funding didn't dry up in 2012. It kept going to 2015. He now went on with George Knapp the other day, and he is saying it's still going on. So I don't know what it is, okay? I don't have access to Louis Alzando. I know a person from To The Stars that has met him and talked to him. says he's a real cool cool kook. Oh, I can't talk. A real cool cucumber. That's a tongue twister, man. He's the, yeah, I know, but he's the real deal. But you know, I, I know that there's some people out there that just think the guy is, I don't know, fraudulent in what he's saying. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. I don't know. I do know this for a fact, though. We've gotten more in the last couple of weeks, month, than we ever have in the last seventy years studying this phenomenon and some people would disagree that's fine that's their opinion they're they're entitled to that but i would disagree we've gotten a lot and we will continue to get a lot i also know that there's going to be a video uh, released along with these stories much more clear uh forward looking infrared video of another craft that darts from left to right I don't know more than that. It's just what I've been told. Um, what else? What other updates do I have for you? Um, 
Yeah, I'm trying to think. There's so much. Um, what about this? Uh, what about this? This um, contactee or abductee study that uh, you were talking about last time? Yeah, it's still going on. Um, I know I contacted after the episode that I was on with you and Sarai. I contacted John Burroughs because I I know and this is public knowledge. This is in a book he's talked about before. But just it just it seems it goes right over UFO researchers' heads. He was one of the participants in this group that Kit, Dr. Kit Green used to basically make the template for to see if you're true, you're a true experiencer or not. Now again, I don't know what that entails of how he got to make that template. I just know that they can tell whether you really did have an experience or you have not. And the way that I've seen or read that is the case is that somehow it alters your DNA when you come in contact with this phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So he, John Burroughs, would not really give me a whole lot about that other than it is continuing. He is still a subject of Christopher Kit Green and Dr. Gary Nolan, and that's all he would say. Um, I asked him then, what do you think about this whole Tom DeLong project? He says, I don't know. I don't know what they're doing. It's very interesting. Um, he just hopes that he gets some answers for participating in this um, this study. Now, he already has gotten a little bit of uh, good, uh, not feedback, but good results from it because Kit Green's the one that got his medical uh, files read after they were released um, through um, John McCain. And basically, Kit Green read it and said, you're, you were exposed to a certain radiation that is not indicative of stuff that um, we have the capability of doing. So read that into what you want. Um, the other little update is not the gimbal video, but the Nimitz video. Right. I don't know if I shared that. The that's Nimitz the video, that's the TikTok from, video, right? Yes. Now the TikTok video. Yeah, I sent you a video taken, yesterday that was pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that was actually the real TikTok video. <laughs> <laughs> it's better quality sure yeah <laughs> but, but Cor jimmy corbell has confirmed to me and through uh, a couple of podcasts that the tic-tac video was taken in 2015 on the east coast it was not part of the, the nimitz situation the gimbal video and the gimbal video well the, the whole incident the nimitz incident it seems like there was a ton of USO and UFO activity. Again, I know that the Scientific Coalition for Ufology, Robert Powell, and um, I can't think of the other guy's name, the two main guys that left MUFON after the fiasco with John Ventry, um, they have found FOIA on the Nimitz stuff, but that's coming back all classified. And it will, because... They're not, it's kind of like Mirage Men. They're going to give you a little bit. They're going to give the public a little bit. But if you're a researcher and you're willing to play their game, you know, willing to just uh, 
listen and be patient, they'll give you little bits and pieces like they've given me. I know that some people have said that I'm making stuff up, but you can attest pretty much everything I've told you is either come to fruition or was it came to be true. Yeah. I, I told you about Robert Bigelow well before Robert Bigelow was announced that he was part of this. Um, right. The only other information I guess I can tell you is I didn't listen to it. Uh, didn't get a chance to, but I guess Hal Putoff was on Coast to Coast, and he said that the U.S. government has had a few different crash retrievals in their time. Now, obviously, if you're a UFO researcher, that's probably that's public knowledge. Whether we can whether we can prove that or not, I can't because I've never seen a disc that was retrieved by our government. I haven't seen. I've seen one on my own, but I have not seen one retrieved from our the U.S. government. Now, Grant Cameron's claiming um, one of his contacts uh, had taken a DIA scientist to the Aztec crash site and got material there, refound material, but was blindfolded during that entire time. So I don't know if that's speaking of that case. I don't know. And Grant's been pretty on the ball lately about this stuff. I don't know why people don't pay. I mean, some people do pay attention to him. Him and I have traded emails and texts before. Um, I've given him some stuff. He's given me some stuff. So there's there's researchers trying to figure crack this nut, but it's just a hard one to crack because I just we don't know what this is. And this is I disagree with everybody. I guess I'm the 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 black sheep of ufology. <laughs> is I think this is something that we have never seen before it really isn't we've never seen this before uh, people who say this is ben, the uh, paul bennett's case 2.0 uh-huh. they're totally wrong this is not paul bennett's it's not this is not intended for one person this is intended for either the public as a whole and i it could be for ufology even though i hate that word it could be but i highly doubt it i just i don't think that's the intended target I just don't. I think it's just a a, 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 a a bystander at this point because so many people are hating on this entire thing. I mean, so Sor- Soraya brought up the whole Benowitz thing as a reference to Tom DeLong, and I don't know if that's necessarily true for Tom DeLong. I don't think the I think the purpose for Benowitz was just to give him enough disinformation to cover something out up that was local that they didn't want out. Exactly. I think that this could be a lot more than just, this is obviously a lot more than just that. I mean, it doesn't mean that Tom DeLong isn't a tool, so to speak. No, I'm not, In probably a couple of sure. different ways. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, it just, it just makes me think that he's, he's being, he's definitely being used. But whether or not it's to try to deflect him from something or to drive him insane, I don't think that that's what's going on here. I honestly believe that, and here's the other little puzzle piece that I was given. They tried in the 70s with the Robert Eggermager film of the Hallman Air Force Base, supposed, you know, where he got three seconds of real footage. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. a person 
and I'm not going to say who, who have been in contact with the Two Stars Academy, they told me that was the original OG disclosure that they were going to go with, and it fell apart. Now, I've talked to Grant Cameron about this, and he thinks it's a really good idea. It's a good hypothesis. They probably chose Stephen Greer as the go-to man in the 90s and early 2000s. But it never took off. And then yeah, because he, he decided to start a cult. So, <laughs> well, yeah, it, it did. It, yeah. He, he did. He got a cult, a cult going. But his ego got in the way. And obviously they like to pick people with ego, but his ego got even too big for them right. to deal with. Right. So they cut him off. And they basically, and this is another thing that, again, UFO researchers are just not picking up on. Everybody that was in Greer's inner circle, at least in recent years, in the last five years, or even more, because Tom Dolan was in his inner circle uh, back in the early 2000s, has jumped ship to Tom DeLong. Yeah. You had this new, and I hate David Wilcock, but I had to sit through it. I had to sit through it, Adam. I just had to, because he's got a new, whist a new whistleblower. Uh -oh. And this guy is not Corey Good. This guy worked with Stephen Greer during the time of the Anacama humanoid. Now, he, this guy, this whistleblower, I can't think of his name, um, he claims that it's an alien and that Stanford's just covering it up. But this is where it gets really murky. He is also friends with Dr. Gary Nolan, the Stanford geneticist who is now working in kind of secret for To the Stars on their scientific team okay. and also part of the Experiencer program. That, to me, is huge, because this guy went on with David Wilcock and disputed a At first, the story was kind of believable. He was a surgical tech in the Army. He, he was based at Kirkland Air Force Base. They had an Army depot on it, which that is true. But then he just got into some weird stuff, and he says there's over 2,000, or no, 200 different species of aliens, and he was dissected all kinds of stuff, and he was in the super soldier program. Of course. Like, whoa, 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 of course. Whoa. They're all, they're like, all super soldiers, man. I'm like, Jesus, Jenny, man, whoa, time out. The part to me, though, that is interesting <laughs> is, again, the fact that Stephen Greer, he has a connection to Stephen Greer, but so does Gary Nolan. Gary Nolan was that Stanford scientist who was looking at that little humanoid and trying to figure it out, because he's the world's leading geneticist, to see if it was human or otherworldly. And then when he came out and said it was human, Greer basically disowned him. But Stephen Greer, I think, was one of the people that they decided, fine, the 70s disclosure failed, we'll put it on you. It didn't really take off with Stephen Greer. And with Tom DeLong, for some reason, I, I don't know, maybe it's his, his, his appeal to young people, or maybe his Blink-182 fans, I don't know, or maybe he's just a likable guy. But this one has taken off and is into the stratosphere. I don't see it falling apart. And people who say it's falling apart, they're just 
they're not in the know. They're just they're not paying attention. Leslie King has said numerous times, "There's more stuff coming. I'm working on it. I just have to get the okay from probably Jim Semivan, who's running the whole operation." But I guess my point is, is this is not the first, I guess, quote unquote, attempt at this game. But this is the most successful, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So, well, it seems like the intelligence, the former "quote unquote" intelligence agents, agents are firmly in control of this. Oh yeah, I mean, I'll say this on your show: I found Jim Semivan's brother. He lives in Michigan, so I went to contact him. And I wanted to just ask him, Is Jim was Jim truly a CIA, a CIA agent? Even though you know, Chris Bledsoe says he was, and a few other people, Grant Cameron says he can confirm that he was. But I just, from my own self, wanted to confirm. The minute I went to go to contact his brother, who lives here in Michigan, he deleted his Facebook. Hmm. I was like, hmm, probably people are bugging him, or they've kind of figured this out. Yeah. I don't know. But... I'm trying, I mean, I'm trying all my little tricks of the trade that I've done. I will say, I have another little interesting story for you. Sure. There's another experiencer here in Michigan, I won't name her name, but she's a very important person in Michigan when it comes to her experiences because she's, she's had so many of them. And what was interesting is she was in MUFON during the time of James Carrion being the international director. And this is also when Bigelow bought into MUFON. And I don't know what year exactly. She never really told me uh, what year this was exactly. So I assume it's from the time from maybe 2007 to maybe 2009, just before Bigelow got out. But there, there was a MUFON symposium in Colorado, and they gave the researcher the year to Robert Bigelow. Now, how this correlates to this woman? Well, George Knapp just so happened to be in a Starbucks that this woman entered in, and she introduced herself, and they started talking, and she started telling him about the Skinwalker Ranch-like stuff that was happening at her house and or, and or around her house. And he said, Bob would love to meet you. Bob would love to meet you. She's like, Bob who? Bob Bigelow. She's like, really? Isn't he like a billionaire? Or he's like the head guy from MUFON or whatever? He's like, yeah, he, he, he would love to meet you. That meeting never took place. But what was interesting, though, is she, once she got back to Michigan and started working on her files about her own experiences, those files at MUFON began to disappear left and right. Not just a few a couple hundred of all her experiences and good thing she backed stuff up, but then she had all, kind, it was like almost like Camilio. That's why I said to her, I think you possibly were a targeted individual too, mm -hmm. because the, some of the stuff that had happened in her home can only be explained by this adaptive camouflage stuff that they come in your home and they just mess with you. They mess with their daughters. They mess with her. They mess with her dogs. Um, her husband never, during the time, never, ever, ever saw anything. Never heard anything, never saw anything. He just thought it was all hooey and his family was going crazy. 
But that is interesting to note that after she got back from that meeting, all of a sudden her files start disappearing, and she still has never found them. Uh, she's got backup on computer disk, but still, it kind of sucks that all that stuff got disappeared. And James Kieran's like, listen, I'm the only one that had the, the password and you. That's it. So I don't know who else could have taken it. Now, either he's lying and or he's telling the truth. I said, I don't know. I've never met the guy. I don't know a whole lot about him. I know he's kind of got the UFO game. I'm not going to about to ask him because it really doesn't bug me. But another little interesting thing of note is I know another uh, experiencer, another female, she was asked by, because uh, she went to the same conference, she was asked by George Knapp to join Robert Bigelow, and guess who else? Harry Reid in a private room because they knew that she was an experiencer. Mm. And she's like, what's this relating to? Because she just, and, uh, and again, I guess she's highly psychic too. So maybe she read his mind. I don't know, okay? And I can't confirm that. Sure. I just know that she does have this ability. And she said, what's this regarding? Well, we know that you have been in contact with the others, and we would like to know how the propulsion system works. She's like, no, I don't want to. I, I don't feel comfortable with three males in a room with me. And then all of a sudden, Robert Bigelow says, well, Harry Reid, Senator Harry Reid's going to be there. Nothing bad's going to happen. How about this? I'll buy you a plane ticket back to your where you live and pay for the rest of your trip here. Just come sit with us and talk about that. She said, absolutely not. And then after that, she was harassed too, mostly on her phone. But that's very interesting to note that here is Robert Bigelow, Harry Reid during that time, and George Knapp. And I'm not trying to disparage George Knapp. I do like him, but it is interesting that both these cases with both these women, he's wanting to give them to Bob Bigelow to be interviewed about their experiences with this phenomenon. And they're, from what the woman in Michigan told me, they're very adamant on wanting to know how the propulsion system works. Mm. She's like, I never, I was never in the room where the propulsion system worked. Well, did they tell you how it worked? She said, no. <laughs> But they wanted to know this. So. Bizarre. Yeah. The only other little thing I can tell you is the when that $22 million got allocated to this black budget program for Bigelow, DIA officers and other military people were on Skinwalker Ranch. So everybody from Erica Lukes to Ryan Burns to Ryan Skinner to Dave Rosenfeld, all those people who live in Utah and said there was a military presence during that time were telling the truth. They definitely had a military presence there. Now, we don't know anything what the DIA did during that time, the Defense Intelligence Agency. We just know that they were there. So that's also very interesting to note. And they, I guess what Jimmy Corbell has told me, 
The DIA was very interested in other sites throughout the world, but mainly here in America. They were looking for sites like Skinwalker Ranch. And, but see, the funny thing to me is, and I told this to Jimmy Corbell, they do realize the whole Uton Basin is like chock full of this phenomenon. It's not just at the Skinwalker Ranch. He's like, I know, but this is what I was told. So, yeah, I don't know. We're going to hopefully find some, find out more about this whole connection to Skinwalker Ranch and Robert Bigelow and this Yeah, that whole stuff. thing is just weird in, a, in and of to itself. Yeah. You Did you hear my uh, interview with Derek Gilbert and Josh Peck? I did not. Yeah, I haven't had a chance just yet. Not quite yet. I'm curious what you, what you thought about that, because they come from like the very Christian perspective on this stuff. So yeah. I was going to be curious about what you, what you thought about it. I, well, I mean, not that I've heard it, but I just, I know that like there's people who have gone to the ranch and said, Jesus is telling me to go there. And then they I had the experience where this was. I haven't heard this yet. There was a guy who pulled up to the ranch and said, God is telling me to come to the ranch. And this is when Bigelow, supposedly he sold it, but I, I find that very dubious. But anyways, he pulled up to the ranch, and obviously this is when Nids was still there. And I don't know about a military presence, but he did have private contractors on that site to protect it. But this guy, this hippie, said, God is telling me to come here. So they reluctantly, because they know how the phenomenon works, and they want to study it. So the NID scientist said, yes, let him on. Let him do his thing. So the guy gets onto Skinwalker Ranch into a pasture. And he basically sits, Indian style, sits down. And next thing you know, on a thermal camera that the NID scientists are watching, this thing, kind of like the Predator, not looking like the Predator, but I'm just saying, you know, you could heat, see a heat signature. It's coming towards this guy. They didn't say anything to him at all because this guy's meditating and think he's talking to Jesus or God or whatever he was doing. This scene comes right up to his face and they had this on film. And it roars in his face. It becomes now he can see it because before he couldn't see it. He had that like the predator adaptive camouflage uh, situation going on. And it roars in his face. He jumps up, jumps over the gate, tells the, the scientist and tells the military, or not the military, the contractors, to drive him away because the devil lives here. This is in the book? That's in the book for Hunt for a Skinwalker. Okay, maybe I've forgotten about that part because I've read that book, yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you get time ever, go, on, go down a YouTube rabbit hole with uh, um, George Knapp giving an interview about, or talk rather, on Skinwalker Ranch. It's on YouTube. It's about an hour long. I think he talks about that story there, too. But, yeah, that was a wild one. I mean, here's a guy says, God is telling me to come here. It lures him in there. They say, we know the phenomenon likes new people or new things, so hell yeah, we're going to let him come on. And then, lo and behold, this thing scares the living crap out of him. Hmm. So, yeah. Um. One final thing I wanted to ask you before I let you go, Chris. Um, you watched the series Wormwood. Yes, I did. What did you think about that? I thought it was fantastic. I was wowed that 
Netflix would take a chance on this. <laughs> um, it was an interesting outcome where the son wasn't really caring about the MK Ultra aspect or the LSD. The fact that they they basically made him commit suicide was more interesting to him. Um, and the fact that they covered it up and basically everybody who was involved just died. Nobody got in trouble. The only thing that I think the son regrets is the fact that they signed all that stuff where they couldn't sue the U.S. government. Yeah. Um, but I thought that series was amazing. I tried to tell everybody to watch it. Um, I, I Again, like I said, I just cannot believe Netflix had something like that on. I mean, Netflix is getting good because uh, Jimmy Corbell's uh, Patient 17 just is premiering. It premiered yesterday. I'm going to have so to watch get, that, yeah. That is excellent. And I, I was blown away because Nanoman makes an appearance in it, and he is a scientist. He is a government contractor, and what he says, I'm not going to give it away, but what he says will blow your mind <laughs> because uh-huh. it's like, okie dokie. By the way, this is the same Nanoman, which I know Corbell is trying to get this out also on Netflix, the whole documentary about Nan- Nanoman. But Nano Man supposedly has material from an extraterrestrial craft that he was given because he worked on said programs. Hmm. Now, again, I haven't seen it, but this is what Corbell has said in various interviews and in the one uh, Nano Man. Uh, he, there's only one part of the documentary that's out right now. It's only like 15 minutes long. But Jimmy Corbell, that's something that I'll just touch on really quickly. People need to pay attention to Jimmy Corbell because they're releasing stuff that's coming through to the stars through Jimmy Corbell, too. Why is uh-huh. that? I do not know. But they are. Probably because they want to go, again, get the younger crowd involved. He's a badass researcher. He really is. He knows the stuff. And I don't know. I don't think it. it any of it's disinformation. I think he's getting quality information. It just people just need to pay attention to him. I think that's going to be a name that we're going to be hearing from for a very, very long time. And quality work, not like foo foo stuff. It's going to be very good stuff. So right, right, yeah. Well, very cool, Chris. Thank you so much. That's a that no. Was a thank hell of you. An <laughs> yeah, yeah. I try. All right, sir. Uh, thank you for being part of the 200.5 episode. And, <laughs> I feel uh, honored. Guys, we'll, thank you. We'll be back. I'm going to talk to Guy Malone hopefully this week too. So I get him in on the on the conversation. All right. Thanks, Chris, a lot. And uh, I'll be right back with another guest. <laughs> Hello guys, welcome back. It's a few days later, episode 200.5 still continues. 
And I have on the line someone that uh, we were very privileged to have seen last year in Roswell and to have helped out with his conference out there, which uh, caused a little bit of stir among the Roswell UFO community. And that's Guy Malone, which, Guy, you have been around with us since, like, literally almost the beginning think you were like our fourth or fifth guest or something like that <laughs> so yeah i mean i'm privileged to be uh talking to you i was privileged to have you guys helping me oh well, thank uh, you. during that conference you mentioned you said you were privileged to see me now the the privilege was all mine sir it's good just hanging out a little bit more too in that type of setting yeah that was something else man we we uh we really enjoyed coming out there and the the trip out and helping you out um when we got there it was like a hundred something degrees in the shade <laughs> yeah <laughs> it was something uh, that's why as well <laughs> yeah yeah that was something else buddy i mean and we were we we got there and immediately started loading in chairs for your yeah you got put to work in the heat immediately uh-huh. Uh, yeah uh-huh Thanks for saving saving my butt. <laughs> oh man, no problem, no problem. We we were glad to do it, and we also got to uh, experience the flies in Roswell too, which was a uh, which was a really great experience. I forgot they were. Uh, yeah, that that's a thing in the summer. It's a hundred degrees, and especially this year, you people around the world know Roswell as the um, UFO capital of the world. That's one of its nicknames. Yeah. A few other cities claim claim that title but the actual signage says it's the dairy capital at least of the southwest uh what people don't know about roswell like the industry sometimes tourists ask well where's all the money come from or what really drives this town is that um used to be the largest but now one of the largest uh, dairy cheese manufacturing plants in the world and the nation or whatever is here is in Roswell. It employs shifts 24-7, Leprino cheese, and there are over 60 dairies in the greater Roswell County area or whatever. And this is just a stupid little side note is that you won't believe this number when I tell it to you because it, 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 it won't process as easily. But this plant, Leprino cheese, uh, goes through literally over a million gallons of milk per day producing cheese. Wow. And, yeah, you and I, we, we, we can't go to the store and buy Leprino cheese. It's not a brand you know, not even like Kraft or anything, uh-huh. because you and I aren't Leprino's customers. Um, Papa John's and Pizza Hut. Are Leprino's customers? Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, maybe Domino's too. <laughs> I forget you're in the industry. Yeah, that's but, that's um, interesting. That's all a kind of long way of saying is that a lot of the money that runs Roswell pays the taxes is not UFO related. Uh, it's it's milk, dairy, and cheese related, and flies are part of the tax yeah <laughs> there, there's uh, there's times where it gets really really bad <laughs> yeah and, and um also understand that it's a um it's a huge retirement community too because we ran into quite a few retirees that had no idea about the ufo stuff but uh they would just move there just to retire so it was like a huge retirement community. 
Yeah. Longer tail for people with allergies or sinuses or whatever, because it's kind of a we do get cold. It's winter here. I mean, it, it's in the teens overnight in the in the dead of winter. Wow. Uh, occasional snow. We really have four seasons. You picture desert, and that's not necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. But when uh, a lot of the economy left Roswell after the uh, Army Air Base closed, yeah, you know, that that one, the famous one from the Roswell incident. Um, a couple other big plants. There was a bus company. There was a Levi Jeans company uh, plant. There was a candy factory. And all those uprooted and pulled out like in the 90s or prior. Uh, I kept hearing these names when I moved here in 99. And uh, one of the answers, the city somewhere got the bright idea to market to um, retirees. So they made a big advertising push. What a great place it is to retire because largely because of the very low cost of living and the wonderful weather and a lot of people bought into it so you're right there's a lot of retirees here who you might have thought they're old people in roswell so they know about the the ufo or the incident so let's ask them and you're right they, they many of them know nothing mm-hmm. turns out turns out like a joke in a joking way a lot of retirees who would come to Roswell rather than say Miami don't have a lot of money. (laughs) So while it was intended as an economic shot, let's market Roswell as a retirement thing. uh, It it probably didn't have the intended effects of bringing a lot of wealth into Roswell. I gotcha. And, and you know, working class, right, right. Working class retirees. I, I, uh, we also got to eat a Whataburger too. So that was a real pleasure. There's, there's no Whataburgers in Nashville? There's no Whataburgers in Nashville. Oh, crap. I, I remember as a kid. That was the, the big deal. Right. I loved my dad taking me to Whataburger. Uh, so they were here? They're gone. Holy cow. Like uh, I remember Whataburger when I was very little, like second grade kind of kid. Yeah. Rob was saying... I'm older than you, though. Rob was saying there were some in Dallas when he went there. Like, And uh, I think um, also... I think we looked at it. I think Birmingham was like the closest place to Nashville that still has Whataburger. <laughs> Bomb diggity. I'm glad you got to experience that. Uh, I've got a, if you're here ever again, sitting on the dashboard of my car right now is a buy one, get one free mushroom Swiss at Whataburger. <laughs> so well, if I we, might just save it for you. If we get, uh, if, if I ever get out to uh, LA to visit Greg Bishop, I'll have him take me up to in and out burger. So they'll, yeah, I want to hit those up. That'll complete the uh, the Trinity. Um, I the burger tour. Yeah, the burger tour. I uh, what do you been what do you been up to since the since the conference? What have you been doing? Uh, been just quite a, a few couple things. Now. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, you. I wish you. I wish I could jump into all the UFO research and development stuff like that. But you know more than anybody. I work full time waiting tables. I'm more or less on the side. So I kind of went back to my six nights a week. And I'm also uh, achieved a certification as well um, because I don't want to go into my 50s and 60s as a waiter if I can help it. So um, as, as weird or controversial as it is to others, I'm actually certified in Bitcoin technology. Okay. I've been studying Bitcoin both as a market for investment purposes and as the, the tech behind it. And then the uh, in the UFO field, the movie I was working on, I think you know about with um, Gary Bates on alien intrusion. 
where he kind of traveled the world doing some interviewees. That has come out just last month and appeared in 700 theaters. Yeah. So finally, I've um, I've made it to the silver screen. Woo! <laughs> Congratulations, guy. Let's talk a little bit about this Bitcoin Thank stuff. Thank you, you bro. Know, this this is uh, this is pretty hot. Really? Right okay. Now. You know the. We talked a little bit about this on one of our episodes with Ren Collier. Um, he's also a Bitcoin trader. And uh, I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on it because, you know, like 2013, I remember seeing and hearing about Bitcoin. And oh. um, so I've known about it for a while, but it just seems like it's become into like the national consciousness into popular culture just in this, well, end of 2017, beginning of this year. You know, so so what are you doing with Bitcoin? How's it working for you? You also were talking well, about I'm this. I'm buying it. When, you were also talking about telling me about this back when uh, during the conference too. So okay, good because I knew I was doing the conferences with all the free time I had, and I was trying to decide what to do after it, and that was one of the things I was getting semi obsessed with. Um, and I decided to go full on. Is that it's um peer-to-peer electronic currency. I mean, I, I just started studying how it works. I knew that people look at it either as a currency or as a store of value. People use the phrase digital gold. It was invented as a currency that eliminates banks and governments originally. If you know, I'm sure you discussed a little of the history. You have that much understanding of what it is, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. The reason it's hit the headlines is because as a store of value or as an investment, it's gone through the roof. It's actually kind of ruined its intended use as a currency to where you and I can send, we exchange value. We can exchange payments between one another without paying Visa or PayPal that 3% or American Express 5%. You'll hear people talk about their qualified financial advisors and brokers and J.P. Morgan or Jamie Diamond, oh, it's a fraud, it's a scam. Those industries are extremely threatened by digital currencies in general. And when I, there's a plural because there's like 1,400 of them right now. Bitcoin's just the one that, it was the first and it's the oldest and it's what makes the headlines. But um, I bought a little Bitcoin. I wish you had Ben put up ten dollars worth in 2013. I wish that for you. And I mean, don't you? you yeah, about it back yeah. Then? I remember hearing about it. I just didn't think anything of it at the time. Well, I read a little bit about it in 2015, and it seemed a little too complicated for me to wrap my head around. Yeah, but in like two years ago, January, I, I bought ten dollars worth online. And it's simple to buy. It's just uh, websites that are called exchanges. Same as if you're traveling from one country to another. You exchange one form of currency for another. Bitcoin is a digital currency. It exists only on the Internet. You can't hold one in your hand. They're less physical than email. But uh, And they're not created or generated by a government or a bank. And that's one of the huge question marks is it legitimate is it fake is it going to collapse what gives it any value and the the simplest answer is uh human beings decide what has value and what doesn't amongst themselves 
tell me why Amazing Spider-Man number one is worth thirty thousand of your of our U.S. dollars right. to some people. Right? Why is a Babe Ruth rookie card or a Michael Jordan baseball card? You know, we've gone from seashells and trading twenty-four dollars worth of beads to purchase Manhattan Island um, to gold and silver to pieces of paper that we all know technically have no intrinsic value <laughs> themselves. At least dollars, you can burn them if you're cold. Um, they, they, they have that much intrinsic value beyond what they call the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. But they're inflationary. They lose value over time because they're printed into infinity. So the math behind Bitcoin is that it's deflationary. There, there's a cap. There's only a certain number that will ever be created. So as far as properties of money go, the technical economic term there, um, there's scarcity involved. And that gets back to why Amazing Spider-Man, number one, could be worth so much money. Because there's only a few of them in good condition. Yeah. The people that want them, it's, just a, it's a very libertarian supply and demand. After the financial crisis of 2008, some people got very mistrustful of government-issued currency and the way banking works and the uh, the Cyprus bailout, their bail-in you may have heard, where the government closed the banks for a weekend at a country in Europe. Mm -hmm. And when you woke up Monday morning, citizens had had 10 to 40% arbitrarily removed from their savings accounts. Yeah, I remember to that. To fund the government. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... And that's just how Bitcoin got started as a solution to that sort of thing. Peer-to-peer, -peer, it's spread out across 10,000 computers across the globe, how to work it. Um, it can't be um, counterfeited or, for or forged or double-spent. And really, the only way to eliminate it is to turn off all the electricity and all the Internet in the world at once. Which might happen, but you know, but you, the value of your portfolio would actually be the least of your problems if that happens. So, yeah, and it, you know, you're right. It's a very libertarian kind of aspect to it, a very almost kind of like anarchist, anarchistic kind of aspect to it. But how are the uh, right now? You know, there's a little bit of a downward slide in the market the last few days. Is that affecting yeah. Bitcoin at all? Uh, hugely. I, I would say it's a correction. It's a small enough market. I mean, like you may have seen, it shot up to like touching $20,000. A year ago, it was $1,000. Right. So anything that goes from $1,000, that's why it hit the headlines. It went from being worth $1,000 barely in January of last year to touching nineteen dollars and $20,000 within a year. So from an investment perspective, anything that makes 20 times your investment Fortunately, like I said, I started buying a little bit two years ago. Uh, the value was $396 when I made my first $10 purchase. So that's worth, you know, 20 times what I paid for it. But, you know, unfortunately, I didn't buy $1,000 worth or $10,000 worth. I'm, I'm nowhere near Bitcoin rich, still waiting tables. But I buy $10 a week worth, no matter what the price. Okay. So after... Yeah, Thanksgiving it just went nuts. Five thousand. I think it broke six and seven thousand dollars in the same day. Either that or it broke ten and eleven thousand dollars in the same day, which was unheard of. So that was a real crazy rise 
any market, you know, a correction or a pullback would be expected after a crazy rise like that. And I feel sorry for anybody that bought it at 15000 or $19,000. Well, actually, no, I feel sorry for them if they sold it shortly after buying it at that price. I'm still fine with a $40,000 uh, estimate or price call by the end of uh, this year, uh, in my personal opinion. And like I said, I believe in the tech behind it. As an investment, you know, things are crazy. But it's a very small market. Sorry, that, that was the point I should have concentrated on. Compared to gold, compared to stocks, it's a tiny market. It doesn't take much. It's like throwing a pebble in your bathtub or a pothole full of water or a pond or a lake or a river or an ocean. Any headline, good or bad, or any major purchase or any major sell-off by one hugely rich individual or one conspiracy of hugely rich individuals can greatly influence the market right now, the price, so to speak. Um, so that's what's, there's a little bit of market manipulation for sure. There's headlines that make it look bad. The, the media, there's over 250 Bitcoin obituaries where Forbes and USA Today and Time have, have declared Bitcoin dead mm -hmm. over 250 times now. Really? <laughs> um, it, it, yeah, yeah. there's a site that tracks them all, Bitcoin obituaries. I think it's just .com, but it's kind of funny for a laugh. So you're right. The price went down uh, last several days. It's, it's inching back up solidly. It's kind of found its bottom for now, but I buy it uh, weekly called dollar cost averaging, whether it's high, whether it's low. And my thing is, you know, I want to, as a retirement fund, so to speak, I've diversified to where I, there's, like I said, there's many other digital currencies. Yeah, I don't I think anybody's going to ask you about see, that. Are you, are you, yeah, uh, you and me, are you, are you, are you investing in any of the other ones? Yes. I'm not a day trader. I'm a hodler. H-O-D-L, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, the, it's for hold. I buy things and hold them, but the famous thing is on Reddit, somebody got drunk and rambled, and they misspelled hold um, because they were being very unsuccessful as a day trader through a lot of uh, market volatility. So the, the, the meme within the community is HODL, H-O-D-L. I buy and I hold. I don't trade. I don't try to get in and out of the market. Most people lose money when they play that game. You got to be extremely skilled. But yeah, I took a, I had some success on the website Steemit and earned some digital currency. Mm -hmm. Long story short, so I diversified and broke that up into. I own about forty different ones, and most of the time I do my own research. I, I pick projects that look like they have a good long-term future. Um, that are invent they're, they're solving problems that exist or they're solving problems we didn't know we had. And um, like identity verification is one, for instance, a coin I bought Civic. It's gone up and down. But I just took my free digital money from Steemit earnings, earnings with air quotes around it, and converted it into other digital currencies. And I have a pretty diversified portfolio if you look at it from one perspective, I'm about half Bitcoin, a lot of Ethereum, a fair amount of Litecoin. And, and I just mean percentage wise. I don't mean $20,000 and above. Uh, not at today's prices anyway. Maybe at tomorrow's prices. <laughs> but uh, uh, 
I buy like $25 worth of one thing, $25 worth of another. And I've only had one that went nuts. And it, it, it was a privacy coin, Verge, that uh, literally in like a day multiplied by 100 times its value. So I, I cashed out half of that, put it back into Bitcoin, and I literally have a capital gains tax debt uh, to file this year because of that. Something about 30, uh, about under $40 worth, I cashed out half of it for $1,800. But that's my only crazy trade of that nature so far. Everything else I'm just holding on, waiting for more of them to return a hundred. Bitcoin, I think if you, nobody, you've seen articles where if you'd have bought $5 worth of Bitcoin $7 a year ago, you'd now have $4.4 million. That's all very true, but I don't think it's going to happen for Bitcoin again, mm -hmm. but it could, it could happen with other ones. It, it, might, just, uh, it might stabilize at some point to where it's kind of more yeah. even kill. It's not like up and down like it has been. That could happen. It's, yeah. The, the chart I watch is that it's always going up. If you buy it today with the intent of holding it for two to five years, my belief is you'll be fine. You could buy it at 20000 and it really could be at $8,000 a week later. Don't worry about it. Um, the classic chart that's kind of a meme out there now is in 2017. Its price declined six times over 30%. It corrected, and then it rebounded right back up to go higher. It's a chart that is going wildly up and down, up and down, up and down. Um, but it's when you pull back and do month to month, year to year, it's nothing but up. It's going up. So I'm not afraid. You know, there, there are reports that could be worth a million dollars one day. Like some credible sources. I, I lean towards thinking half a million to a million is actually a good projection for it one day beyond 2020. So, you know, if you're buying $10 a week right now, like I am, it, that could be worth 100 times uh, what you pay for it today, eventually. But, you know, I'm a very conservative, only spend what you can afford to lose. Mm -hmm. I look at it as somewhere between a lottery ticket and an IRA. And you're, you're just lucky. It'll be luck, random, it'll be market. But the main thing I emphasize on is, don't trade. Don't panic when the price drops because it's going to. That you have to know going into it. Yeah. It might it might crash 60-70% from the day you bought it. If past performance does show future history, it'll rebound and go even higher. There's just people manipulating the market, <clears throat> the banks, um, and everything. Are They put out a lot of scary headlines. It's called FUD, Fear. Um, fear and doubt. Uh, they drive the price down, just like uh, Jamie Dimon did. He drove the price down with a, with a Bitcoin in the bubble. It's a fraud. I'll fire any of my brokers at, J at Chase Morgan who advise people to buy Bitcoin. And as soon as he said that, combined with a couple other market factors, the price went down, and his company was buying it <clears throat> in the millions of dollars worth uh -huh. over in Europe. Uh -huh. Yeah. They created the, the price crash, then they bought it low, and, you know, banks are doing that right now as so, well. He was actually, it's... Uh, oh, go ahead. Go, go ahead. You had, oh, well, I was going to say, 
he was charged with the from a European agency of market manipulation. They laid up charges against him, but because it's still unregulated right now, it's not illegal to manipulate the market. If that makes sense, sure. If it's not illegal. You know, if it were a stock or any other security, it would be illegal uh, to manipulate the market. Um, but since it's not, they do it. And and the SEC just had a hearing this week that was overall very positive. People were afraid. Oh, are they going to come down heavy-handed? Are they going to regulate it? Is Bitcoin, you know, U.S. government's getting involved? And they were very laissez-faire about it, uh, just like in the Internet in the early 90s, which is also a good comparison for the value, the potential value of digital currencies and blockchain. People thought the Internet was a fad in the mid-90s. Or I the remember that. Only, yep. only geeky tech hobbyists, whatever. I mean, who wants a computer at home? That's ridiculous. A computer is for working. Now we have them in our hand everywhere we go. But anyway, I think the analogy is fair from a financial perspective <clears throat> as far as where it could go. It'll explode. You know, I really think digital currencies are good or for good or bad replacing cash um, or they're, they're carving out a, 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 a huge chunk of even carrying credit cards and debit cards when you can do it from phone apps. It's more popular in parts of the world where many people can't even get bank accounts. They all have phones. There's over a billion adults that, for one reason or another, don't or can't have bank accounts. They don't have a birth certificate where they're born. There's not a physical bank within 100 miles of walking distance for them, all kinds of things like that. So that's where a lot of the adoption is coming from, is um, beyond the U.S., but it's, it's got its own security issues. But, I mean, I would say Bitcoin and digital currencies, they're at the, the 28 versus 56K modem phase of what you and I remember about how hard it used to be to get on the Internet years back. But there's brilliant people working on it, and it's constantly improving. And that's why I'm kind of all in, both as an investment myself and as uh, – a way of teaching other people how to get into it safely and securely to avoid that. That's what made me get that certification. I mentioned I actually am a uh, CDP. I tell people, don't laugh, certified Bitcoin professional. It's, it's a real thing, actually, nice. from a nonprofit. Thank so you. If you're doing, study, study my butt off. <laughs> if you're doing $10 a week, like how much is that per Bitcoin? Because that's not much, right? Not, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, it's like you can buy, you don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. Like you have to buy a share of stock. If you wanted to buy Apple or Facebook, you know, you're talking hundreds or thousands in some cases until a stock splits Bitcoin. You can literally buy zero. You can buy 0.0000001. It actually is divisible up to eight decimal points. They're called Satoshis. Uh, when you get that far down <laughs> after the mysterious, uh, pseudon pseudonym of the inventor or, or inventors of Bitcoin. But yeah, you you can buy $10 worth and have point zero 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 one, for instance, right now. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, it's under 10000 right now. So if Bitcoin became worth a million, and just Google Bitcoin $1 million. Who says it's possible? And you'll be kind of shocked at the results and the, the credibility behind some of the claims. And 
part of that would be because the dollar value, the value of a dollar is always going down. That's guaranteed, inflationary. You know, 1913 Federal Reserve dollars are worth, what, 93 or 97% of their value has been lost since then? Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah, I mean, 100 bucks spent at the grocery store today versus 100 bucks spent at the grocery store five or 10 years ago. Come on. We know the value of the dollar is going down, but right. Well, so gold and silver and Bitcoin tend to hold their value or increase in comparison to dollars. Isn't that interesting? Like something like the, two of the most tangible elements on Earth, and then Bitcoin yeah. is <laughs> a string of code. Um, yeah. So what's this whole thing about Bitcoin being the mark of the beast? A lot of Christians are worried about that, and I am a Christian. Uh, know you are too. Sure, that does come up on forums, and I would say um, it's not that far from being possible. I'm not paranoid about it, or, uh, or I wouldn't um, advise unless a person has a moral imperative against it, then they should stay away from it for that reason. But there's a couple, like I would guess, thoughts you have to consider is that. The, the futuristic view of Revelation is that without a mark on your hand or forehead that's somehow collected, connected to a global infrastructure like the Internet and banking, that there, uh, there'd be no way to buy or sell without using this mark. And a worldwide global currency fits the bill really well. And a lot of people will say, well, no, electronic money or digital currency that's the mark of the beast, you know, and don't do it. It's evil. Um, I would say digital currencies as they exist now, Bitcoin specifically, um, could easily be one step towards that eventuality, but so is the Internet. So are computers. So are the magnetic stripes on the back of debit and credit cards. It's all working toward getting that eventual technology in place. And if you're against Bitcoin for that reason, as a moral Christian, it's bringing out the mark of the best. I, I won't fault a person for it unless they happen to use the Internet and have a debit card, because then you're kind of being inconsistent or hypocritical, you know, yeah. <laughs> is that every, the, every advance in technology of this nature when economics and communication global is getting us closer to the mark of the beast. It really is. Um, I've, I've seen on Facebook, one person who I like has said, I'm convinced if you're a Christian and you're pro Bitcoin or you're shilling Bitcoin, you know, you're an agent, you're, you're the Illuminati or whatever. Uh, you know, I would say, well, that's wrong. You know, the, the kindest way of expressing that belief would be you're deceived, but Unless you're Amish and don't use electricity, I don't think you have a leg to stand on in condemning people anyway who are using uh, Bitcoin. or It's just a trustless... I, I don't like what the banks and some world governments have done in relation to money and economies clap, collapsing. Um, the, the U.S. dollar is printed out of thin air into infinity in a system that's actually designed to create inflation. And anybody who, you know, has the Internet and has uh, 
Facebook news feeds believes it could easily crash one day. It's getting less and less stable when the yuan and the Chinese currencies don't even want to buy oil with dollars anymore. Yeah, there, there's many reasons against it. Um, but if you create something that is accepted globally by people, I mean, heck, you can go down to Roswell in Roswell, New Mexico, little Mexican American owned restaurant, Burrito Express, accepts Bitcoin for payment now. Hmm. Overstock.com started doing it years ago. They were putting it back. Uh, they were putting back some of the profits. You know, you can you can pay on the internet. You don't have to pay PayPal or any other third-party intermediary a fee. And that's the attraction. That's one of the attractions to merchants to want to implement digital currency. And again, that's why banks and typical investment <clears throat> brokers who earn a commission from recommending that you buy a stock and doing it for you, you can do it yourself. That's why I have it set up on my site. If someone is not uh, confident that they can, they're, they're scared of the technology, it's new and they don't want to mess it up, I offer for 100 bucks. I'll do it for you, um, either in person, staring over your shoulder, or we can figure it out on Skype. Um, I can look over your shoulder and tell you what buttons to push on the Internet to connect it to your bank account. You buy it from your bank account, you hold it, and then one day you reverse the transaction and they put those dollars back in your bank account. But it's, it's pretty easy. You don't need someone to do it for you, and that's why brokers and banks hate it. Western Union charges, if you're a migrant worker, that's a good uh, selling point for why it's gotten popular, is that migrant workers like to send money back to their families in different countries. Yeah. Western Union takes up to 30% of that from them, and it takes days to complete. But um, uh, you could do it with a digital currency. You could be done in minutes, and it could be almost free. So just as a free market value goes, if you're a consumer with a choice of, well, I need to get this uh, week's pay to my family in another country. Um, well, PayPal wants this wants 3% to send it to them, or, or maybe they don't. I don't want to malign PayPal. But Western Union wants 15 or 30%, and it's going to take several days. Or I could be done in 10 minutes, and it'd be almost it'd be point zero zero one percent of the transaction. Hmm. It's no brainer. Yeah, that's true. That's part of what's driving the the, the, the adoption of it. Yeah, all very good. Kind of talk too long about Bitcoin <laughs> to conspiracy normal. No, that's okay though. I, I think it's I think it's pretty relevant, you know. But let's talk a little bit about Thanks. this uh let's talk a bit, little bit about this film that you that you've been involved in. Yeah, boy. That it's quite an honor actually. Um Gary Bates, one of the uh, more conservative Christians who's ever spoken in Roswell at uh, in 2009, a conference I was had the pleasure of co-organizing, uh, brought him in with the Joe Jordan, Mike Heiser crowd. Gary is a uh, CMI or Creation Ministries International, um, creation.com. He's the author of literally a top-selling on Amazon book on UFOs, and in the prophecy category, I think, actually, one of those categories. But he's a hardcore uh, creationist, uh, seven days, 24 hours, Earth, six, 7,000 years old. In his book, Alien Intrusion, 
is a huge bestseller on Amazon. Well, he made a movie now called Alien Intrusion, Unmasking a Deception, that um, he got John Schneider as the narrator of. It's a documentary. Uh, John Schneider, known to some as Bo Duke, <laughs> known to others as Jonathan Kent on Smallville. He's the narrator on it. And he interviewed a lot of people, Christian and non, uh, names you know pretty well, actually, and a lot of experiencers on the subject, uh, people who have stopped their abductions. Uh, he went around the world. He got Joe Jordan, mm -hmm. uh, myself, someone else here in Roswell. Uh, Nick Redfern appears pretty prominently in the movie as well. Oh, does he really? Documentary movie. Wow. Yes, yeah. Um, you know, because the conference we did this year was challenges to the extraterrestrial hypothesis, and there are many challenges. Some of them are from a Christian point of view. Some of them are not. And Nick Redfern did a good job on uh, both aspects of that, at, both at our conference last year, and he always does, um, and on the DVD as well. But uh, the movie, uh, Alien Intrusion, it just debuted through a uh, licensing agreement in 700 U.S. theaters. Gary's actually overseas right now doing it and uh, getting it set up in other parts of the world as a theatrical release. Um, but it was mostly big cities that they could work with. It actually, ironically, did not appear in Roswell. So I, I've yet to see my own... Uh, face on the big screen yet <laughs> but we're working towards uh having that happen this year in roswell uh may, probably during the ufo festival it's nothing's firm nothing's signed it's just emails going back and forth right now are you but what i'd like to do is go ahead uh, i'm gonna say well, no, finish your thought there i'd like uh well the idea that's being bandied about for roswell this summer would be uh, to do the movie screening, show the movie over the UFO Festival weekend, and then have people like myself and Joe Jordan, uh, maybe some of the abductee experiencers who are actually in the movie, do a QA panel afterwards. So you could go see the movie on the big screen and then join us to actually ask the people that were in the movie. If I had any money, I'd uh, bring in... Um, uh, Bo Duke himself, John Schneider. He he actually works the convention circuit, so that's within the realm of possibility, actually. But until we know for sure the movie is going to play here, I don't even want to go there. Sure. I don't want to ask him yet. Okay. Actors aren't that expensive. So, <laughs> but yeah, it just, it just presents a... Uh, the, the typical thing you're used to hearing from people like me or Joe Jordan, that abductions are proven to stop in Jesus's name. Yeah. And here's the evidence that lend, lends itself towards a spiritual explanation of the phenomena versus an extraterrestrial explanation of the phenomena where I think the movie hits a home run is it has a fair amount of science in it because all of Gary's staff are PhDs in, in different um, uh, various scientific fields. Maybe not all of them, but many of the ones that he uses for this type of work are, uh, the, the, the problems with space flight and breaking the speed of light, that's presented. Um, the idea that um, aliens are claiming um, credit for creation of life on Earth and other planets, you know, how that is presented uh, versus normal Christian theology or even what a lot of people believe that aren't Christians, 
that's presented. But I think the real home run of the movie is myself as an experiencer, an abductee who has had horrendous experiences when I was a child, um, both uh, traumatic and some sexual in nature. That aspect is not ignored by this movie. He gets some details out of me and four or five other people just telling their stories. And all the stories end. It's brief clips, honestly, interviews. But when you see the sheer number of them, it's hard to ignore or write it off. You've got real people that uh, might make you tear up for a second when you're seeing some of this stuff. And all of them turn around and say, Jesus ended this for me. That's kind of a slap in the face to people that um, want to push a pro-ET agenda. And they think it's all a good thing here to help us. You combine the trauma and the fact that it stops through a spiritual experience. It just kind of blows the... It, it may or may not prove that aliens don't exist. That's not what I'm saying. But for a number of people who are experiencing abductions, it proves that at least a percentage, if not all, of the abduction experience that you would correlate with fairies and incubus and succubus and uh, can be stopped in Jesus' name, that that is not extraterrestrial in its origins. So there's hope. And the movie, more than anything, it hits a home run in the area of actually, you know, it's got theology, it's got science. You know, we can debate theology and science all day long. But when you got real people with real stories and testimonies and they touch your heart <laughs> and they're convincing in that way that they're presented, that's the success of the movie. And it's kind of a must-see from that perspective. I think um, just anyone that wants to consider multiple points of view anyway, it's got a few things that you just won't be able to refute after seeing it. What's the name of the film? Alien Intrusion, okay. Unmasking a Deception. Pretty sure it's alienintrusion.com. You can see the trailer. Uh, you can see me looking all skinny in it. <laughs> I'd, I'd actually done a fair amount of fasting that year and, and a really good ketogenic diet. I might have been down to like 155 or 160 pounds when that was filmed. And then a year goes by and I see it uh, on a, a trailer. I'm like, oh, boy. If I ever do a questions after the movie, the first question is going to be, you put on some weight since that, haven't you, guy? Well, you're still skinny. Yeah. You're still skinny, though. So that's good. I'm bigger than I was when you saw me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's the other thing. I started eating a lot after all, after last year's event. Is it on DVD? More. Is it out? It, it is coming to DVD. Okay. It's not out yet. I believe the site mentions it as pre-release, pre-order right now. Okay. Well, good. We got a good little glimpse into the life of Guy Malone, as it is currently. Congratulations. Thank you for having me, Matt. Congratulations on, what would you say? I'm on, this is 200.5? Yeah, 200.5. <laughs> your, your 200th episode extravaganza is so stretching out to have to be two or three episodes, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's going to be two. It's going to be, uh, well, this one's probably going to be around about two hours, and... The Ooh. second one is going to be the well. The first one is probably ah, I'm going to say it's closer to four. So good, great, yeah. We we how many? What's this in in years or in weeks and months and time for you? The 200 episodes. Uh, we we started 
March of 2012. Wow, you are a hero, man. I think your um, show, the first show we did with you was June of 2012, is what I'm thinking. Oh, right on. Yeah. Right on. it It wasn't too much longer after we actually started. I think the first episode we put out was April of 2012. And the second episode was our first guest, which was good old Dr. Future. So, which he shows up. Yay, Mike. He shows up on episode 200. So, in the further. I wish I could have been there in person with uh, this. I wish you could have uh, man. Extravaganza. Man, you are, you're definitely a faithful <laughs> pioneer. You've had such a, oh my gosh, you've been at this many years. Yeah, thank you. I've tried. Yeah, you, you were on one I was doing. But just because of my full-time work schedule, I'll just, uh, i got to get paid and get, get more paying work involved. Yeah. So who's 200? I know you've had some of the biggest names in many fields in there. I'll ask you a question, Mr. Interviewer. What's Who haven't you had on that you have your sights on for I, 300? I, What's some of the biggest names you wish you could get still that you want to even big name. think about or risk trying? Big name that I would like to get is be uh, Josh Gates from um, Expedition Unknown, Destination Truth, those shows. I'd like to get him on the. Right. I'd like to get him on the show. He was actually there in Roswell. You're right. I managed yeah. <laughs> to uh, I managed to give him my card because he was eating with his crew just like a couple of tables down from us at that restaurant we were in after the parade. So I'd love to get him on. There's there's a few other people um, that I'd kind of with bigger name people I'd kind of like to get on, but uh, I'll save that as a surprise. <laughs> but he would be yeah, one I'd love to get on. It. And we're gonna try. Have to you communicate with him at all? Uh, not yet, not yet. But it's gonna happen okay. soon. So. Well, I look forward to checking in with you on two fifty or three hundred or whatever. You have been, you're amazing uh, uh, being able to stick with this and keep it going thank, and, and really attracting some top talent. Well, thank you, Guy, and you know, thank you for all your support over the years, too, well, for us. So you've, been a, you've been a huge supporter of the show, allowing us to come out there and do our interviews and hang out with you guys. That was a real, that was a real pleasure. I was going to use the same word, man, and... Yeah, it's good to do, it's, you and I, we just, in one sense, it was good to do the stuff with you, to do the Roswell thing, to do the UFO stuff, but I also enjoy just being a bumming around Hermitage with you mm-hmm. when I'm there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just, yeah, yep, hometown, nice. hometown fellas, so it's, I like having both, I guess, aspects or dynamics yep. of just being friends with you rather than only just interviews and UFO business or whatever. Well, I'm holding down the fort for you here, guys. So if you ever want to come back, Amen. <laughs> All right, sir. Thank Thanks. you so much. It's been awesome. God bless you, man. God bless you. Bye-bye. All right, uh, guys. We'll be back with one more guest on the 200.5 episode of the Spirit Normal.
Bosley here with us, and he is going to talk to us about some of the stuff that he's been working on. Walter, welcome back to Conspiranormal. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. I always uh, always enjoy talking with you guys. So you're working on a new book, I hear. Um, what is the book about? Well, yeah, it, um, it's been really interesting trying to determine which book I was going to do. Honestly, this is the, the third one that, has, uh, that, that I've approached, and I think it's the one that uh, I need to do. Um, the, the first two, um, the first one was a follow-up to my Latitude 33 book about Disneyland. And um, the premise is good. It's something I definitely you know, need to follow up on. But at the present time, there's just not enough available. I need to do a lot more research in, in order to really justify the book. So I'm still pursuing that. So that one kind of, you know, uh, uh, I, I had to push that down the list. And then I um, started to do one on NIMSA, that murky organization, of course, that I've talked about and written about, you know, this breakaway civilization, in my opinion. And um, I decided that I would try something different with that, and that, of course, is a sort of a video book that I'm doing. Um, so finally, I had been looking at my research, and I realized, you know, there is this one, uh, there's actually two threads, but there's one thread in particular of the two that run through all my books. Now, you know, when you think about that, I've written a book about Disneyland. I've written the book on the explorers and the weird, you know, what I call secret missions series and the strange uh, relics, um, uh, Cabrillo and Burton, and, and I put Ambrose Bierce in there. And then, of course, the Empire of the Wheel stuff about the, the occult, strange, esoteric shenanigans around what appear to be serial murders 100 years ago in San Bernardino. And then, then there's my breakaway book. And then there's my book about my dad, um, you know, with the possible MK Ultra stuff and the UFO retrieval in Roswell. And, you know, these books, um, as different as they are from each other, what's weird is there are these two threads, and this one in particular that runs through all of these books, as diverse as they, they seem. And so I decided that it's time for me to really take a closer look at that and, and you know, try to figure out, okay, what's going on here? Why does this one particular thread run through all these books that seem to be, you know, somewhat diverse, you know, from each other, it could be argued. And that's what the new book, that's what the new book is going to hope to, uh, you know, it's going to explore and hope to provide some good speculations, maybe some answers. And, um, you know, it'll be a little different from the others and that the others I try to present, uh, you know, scenarios or situations and, you know, historical context. And, of course, that stuff will all, those elements will all be there. But, but this one's going to, um, this one's going to try to be even more big picture than I've done before in the past. Can you give us a little bit more detail about the book? Sure. Um, what I have found is, and I think anyone who's read my books will see, is that there is this lore, this, this culture, that, whose lore uh, pops up in the Disneyland book and the Empire of the Wheel stuff, and particularly in, 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 in like I said, everything. And it's, um, let me see if I'm pronouncing this correctly. I've asked my good, good friend Joshua Cutchen to make sure I'm pronouncing it properly, but they're called the... The Tua de Danon, okay? And the Tua de Danon, for those who may not be familiar with them, 
Um, the two Adetanon are this this race of beings, um, essentially humans, um, who, according to the original lore, okay, I don't go anthropological on this. As most people know, I reject the strict anthropological uh, uh, explanation um, or apology, we'll say, uh, for these things. The Tua de Danan um, came from the sky, landed on a mountain in a great fury of clouds in Ireland, okay? And um, they, at first, were met with resistance by the, you know, the local people living there, but then they, you know, they, they whooped their butts and then won them over. And um, essentially, in a nutshell, the, the real Tua, um, when you, you know, when you set aside the appropriation by an, um, anthropologists that they were just another tribe of, uh, you know, Irish people, um, they were kind of like uh, Quetzalcoatl or Viracocha in, in that they brought the locals up to another level of technology and civilization. And I see the anthropological explanation as really just covering the agent uh, tribes or the agent culture, and I use that word agent with a small a, meaning, you know, just that tribe or culture that the Tua influenced and brought up. Uh, when anthropologists speak of the Tua, they're just speaking of human tribes that, that were the result of the influence um, and the impact that this other race of beings had on these people. I see the Tua as a, a, a civilization, a people from that, you know, somewhere else, so to speak. And their symbolism, they, they eventually left Ireland, and what's interesting is um, during the time they were away from Ireland, according to the lore mythology, this was um, looks like it was the time that we had the Quetzalcoatl legends and the Viracoches going around the world doing the same kind of thing. And then, of course, in the, the lore, they returned to Ireland. But what's interesting is through all my work and all my research, all my books, the, the, the fingerprints of the Tua are there. Um, their symbolism uh, in in geography in the geography the lay of the land in in objects um, in landmarks it's really it has been a fascinating thread for me but I've never addressed it specifically um, relative to my works and that's what I hope to do effectively in the new book. So is this similar to the ancient aliens theory, or is this more kind of like your what you've talked about before in Shimmering Light with the underground civilizations? Well, the, the part about going underground is part of the lore. Um, and, and, you know, w- with all the connotations and the snickering people will do, you know, the basic premise, um, you know, I, the basic premise of the ancient aliens thing, I have no problem with. I'm not one of, I mean, my gosh, I've been on the show, okay? Um you know, the idea that somebody came from another world and influenced, you know, Earth-based humanity, i got no problem with that. I mean, I, I think it's just as viable a theory as any of, you know, the others that are out there, and there actually is, you know, in my opinion, I agree that there's plenty of evidence to argue it. Um, so, yes, in that general sense, I see the Tua as, you know, being players in that kind of scenario. Yeah. Um, but... Um, when you look at the specifics of them, it's, you know, it's even, it's very interesting. It's even more interesting. And um, I think that they operate 
on more than just the we come from another world and we're going to teach you architecture and making better weapons. Uh, you know, with the TUA come stories of you know what we would call um, extrasensory type of experiences or abilities. You know, um, psi technology, so to speak. That you know the things they can do. For instance, you know there's the concept of uh, things in the the fairy world, which of course Joshua Cutchins an expert in. You know, dollar. And uh, we're talking about things like the glamoury, like making themselves look like something you know in your mind to you know kind of maybe cloud your um, perception of them or change your perception of them for their purposes. Um, that kind of thing. That's just you know one example, and maybe that that their understanding of of their technology, how it might be tied in with um, nature, natural resources. Of course, you know, classically would appear as magic to us, but just might be their understanding of how to use these things. So that's all in there in the mix with the Tua, um, and uh, it's it's compelling stuff. This reminds me of like the Namo that the Dogon talk about, um, and it's kind of their influence on civilization. Uh, you know, there's a very interesting parallel here. Right. Yeah. yeah um, I, 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 it's interesting you bring them up because uh, that comes up in an analysis I've put in a couple of my books done by a guy, Seshari, um, of the Nimza, the origins of the Nimza, and he connects the 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 Namo and the and the, these beings from the sea with this uh, with these Nimza, you know this Nimza culture that eventually influenced the organization known as Nimza, and, and it gets it can get tricky, but the devil's in the details, and um, you know it's interesting stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I look at since you bring it up. Um, I look at, I look at it this way. Um, my, my present speculation, okay, my present suspicion is that um, take the the concept of the Anunnaki. Okay, you have Anunnaki with the capital A, but then I see them as an Anunnaki with the lowercase a, like the word human being. There's a lot of you know. There's different uh, cultures and races and tribes within you know, our known human race here on Earth, right? We're all human beings, but those people are different from those people, and they're different from these over here as far as cultural and, you know, and racial differences and stuff like that. I see that, I suspect that there are um, rivals, okay, that had a rivalry off this planet, and they're, they're, they're both both parties are Anunnaki in the sense that you and I and people on other continents are human beings, but you know they're not necessarily of the same culture or values, and maybe they're at war with each other, and they've brought that conflict here, and some of these other legends we hear that are similar in uh, you know the basics about how they came from somewhere else and they did that and the other, I think is possibly evidence of what I'm talking about in in. It specifically the Tua, whoever they you know are, went to you know the British Isles, the Namo, so to speak, you know went to Africa, and then you had you know those who uh, we would call the Anunnaki that are connected with the Middle East and such, and actually you know they're one of them. I, I I've suspected that the Tua were kind of on the run from the others, you know who I, for lack of a better phrase, call the Nakis, just because I don't know. 
you know, what they would call themselves. Well, there's also in the Bible the story of the Nephilim, you know, the children of the sons of God, Genesis 6 and all that, and they talk about it in the book of Enoch as well, which isn't canon, but it's still considered fairly sacred scripture. Um, is there, you think there's some parallels here to that as well? Right, exactly. So it's even in that tradition, and when you step back and you know, whatever you're, if you're in one of these traditions, if you step outside that and just look at all the traditions, you know, there you go. And um, we see this a lot, how the basic story is there. It's like um, when the, the scholars first started realizing, hey, wait a minute, you know, there's similarities between these characters in uh, Hindu mythology and Greek mythology. Golly, could they be the same beings? It's, it's that thing. And uh, I would say yes. You know, um, you know, when you have Quetzalcoatl and Viracocha in Latin America doing the same thing that the ancient Irish said that the Tua did, and when the description of the, this Quetzalcoatl in particular um, matches the description of the Tua, you know, guys, uh, you know, do the math. You know, there, there's something going on here with a particular group of uh, people or beings that came here from from somewhere else. But then that opens up the can of worms that, uh, okay, the guys who came down, um, you know, because it's the winner who writes the prevailing history, right? Um, so, uh, you know, we're told about these fallen angels who came down and taught humanity all these dastardly things like warfare and uh, astronomy and things like that. Well, on the other hand, you look at it, they taught them how to defend themselves, right? They taught them, you know, this advanced science so that they could, you know, know more. And, and basically, as I've written in uh, um, a couple of my books, that what, what they were doing was helping create allies here because they knew their enemy was coming. And maybe it's the enemy who wrote the stuff about them being the fallen angels, you know, because you're going to slander your enemy as much as you can. So we're left with, um, I, I think we're at a point where, you know, we're trying to figure all this out. And um, until, you know, until that day comes where they disclose themselves, clearly, um, that's what we have to do, is, is we have to speculate, we have to analyze it, we have to you know, figure this out for ourselves. We have to step outside our superstitions um, and our fears um, to try and look at it as objectively as possible. You know, and uh, I don't, I don't accept the just the, um, the the skeptical disregard for the whole thing. To me, that's that's fear. That's childish to just say, "Oh, it's all nothing. It's all BS." Well, okay, great. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but Dr. Michael Heiser is also someone that speaks about this um, in his book about uh, the um, unseen realm. He talks about Deuteronomy 32 and the gods being basically given dominion over mankind except for the Hebrews. Yeah. But then the problem there <clears throat> that you can look at is take Old Testament versus New Testament. Okay, if you want to go biblical. In the Old Testament, the description of that God who kept, you know, the Hebrews for himself, you know, really, and this has been brought up by several people before me, um, you know, that's a description almost of a psychopath. You know, uh, what, what does an almighty God need to be jealous of? And yet we're told this is a very jealous God. 
you know, this is a being who calls himself Yahweh, and we find out Yahweh is just a title. It's not a proper name. It's the Yahweh, and it, and it has the equivalency of, like, chief or, in modern parlance, commander, and they come out of the sky. And what do they do? They tell these uh, human beings, okay, give us the choice cuts of your sacrifice, I'm doing air quotes, of your sacrificed cows and calves. Cook them this certain way. But what, what does that sound like? That sounds like a bunch of guys who enjoy steak and ribs, and they've gone to this other planet, and they say, hey, you know, cook that filet mignon, you know, medium well, and cook them ribs, baste them like this. Bring them to uh, the top of this mountain where we camp out. Oh, and by the way, bring us, you know, the hottest of your chicks, too, you know, I mean, uh, it's, and and that's in a general sense where you've had the ancient, you know, uh, the god beings who want the virgin sacrifices, so to speak, right, but specifically with the Yahweh, um, it sounds a lot like a being who's setting himself up as this almighty God, because then you go to the New Testament, and what does Christ say to the followers of that guy? He says, um, you are, what does he say? He says, you are the sons of your father, the devil. Okay, and and the God that Christ, since we're going biblical, um, the God that Christ describes in the New Testament is this all-forgiving, all-loving God that has no, he's got nothing to be jealous, Right? Um, and they just sound like two different guys. So even within biblical scripture, um, we have this difference of description of opinion that you know it has to be considered. Let's talk about your work that you've done on the Secret Space Program. Have you done any work on that recently? In any of the stuff that you've been writing about? Not, um, not in the last. My last book, of course, was. Uh, Secret Missions 3, which was my uh, Ambrose Bierce book, Destination Carcosa. So from the perspective of um, a guy who um, probably had associations with um, one of the breakaways, um, that's my most recent foray uh, into the specifics of um, the breakaway part of the whole SSP issue, um, you know, there's been a lot of interesting and, and, quite frankly, zany stuff that has been bandied about regarding SSP in the last, I'd say, eight months in particular. And um, I kind of, um, you know, took a step back from it to let that craziness, let the settle, the dust settle and the craziness die down a little bit because, um, you know, it's a loud noise that people were getting distracted with. But that said, um, you know, my my position on SSP is that, you know, it's there, it exists, it's not as advanced as, you know, the people say it it is with uh, Star Trek and um, uh, Star Wars type of of technology, Uh, I think it's... No, <laughs> I think I, that that's the stuff that I, I you know the Corey Good stuff, the the time jumping commando stuff. This is BS. Um, you know, even Good, my understanding has now said the Blue Avians are rejected, and you know I think it's just because it was getting laughed out of uh, the conversation is why suddenly he's had a revelation. But uh, the William Tompkins stuff, I, I think. I think Tompkins, you know, may he rest in peace. I think he was a guy who, number one, misunderstood something 
that he learned while on duty um, during World War II. And, you know, he was an old guy who loved the attention that he was getting. William Tompkins is the uh, the guy who, uh, you know, was U.S. Navy, and, and he wrote a book about, you know, secret space program and, and all all his adventures and experiences with it. And he was, he was um, I don't know how to describe it, uh, not a courier, but, you know, he had uh, exposure to it, you know, allegedly. And um, it, it really was just, you know, the typical stuff you hear in, you know, uh, the, the, the zanier ufology lore and contactee type stuff. But I don't, I don't want to say contactee because he wasn't a, you know, classic contactee in that sense, but uh, he passed last year, and, um, yeah, you can go take a look. You can Google him and look up his stuff. I don't know what to say about it any further than that, but uh, that's that's my opinion on it. I, I think he misunderstood. I think during World War II when he was in San Diego, what I think he misunderstood was a, a perception management um, thing that the U.S. Navy was doing. Um, because they knew they probably had German or Japanese spies trying to see what was going on. And I think he just basically misunderstood that and extrapolated upon it greatly. Um, and that's that's where I'm at on the Tompkins thing. But he was one of the ones who, you know, last year was bandied about as this is what real SSP is, and um, uh, uh, along with the time-traveling commando stuff. So... There you go. Why do you think MUFON was pushing the Corey Good and the whole David Wilcox thing so hard last year at their convention? Money. I, I, I really think, no, it's two things. Number one, uh, there must be somebody in their organization that believes all that crap, number one, who's pushing it. Okay. Um, but then money. I think they ultimately, the, the decision makers decided, you know what, we can make a lot of money. Um, by entertaining these guys, let's do the first day, and this is how it worked at their conference. The first day, let's have the guys who have been at the legitimate SSP conferences, let's have them speak, and then on the second day, we'll have these goofy, whistle-blowing fantasy spinners, okay? Now, the other element of that is, I think part of the people pushing that was the Wilcock Corey Good Circus, because they were, when I was speaking in Texas in 2015 um, at that SSP conference, um, with Joseph Farrell and Catherine Austin Fitz and Brandenburg and, you know, others. Um, the good Wilcock uh, shills were really pushing hard behind the scenes um, in, you know, in, in uh, 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 what am I trying to say, in, in, the, in the Internet forums and out there to, to really push for Corey Good to speak at this thing. And the guys running it said, Corey Good is a storytelling you know, a fantasy guy, okay? This is not what this conference is about. I mean, people criticize what the speakers at the conference, you know. There's enough, there, there's people that say that's crazy enough. But to take it to the step of the Corey Good stuff, you know, the guy said, no, you know, sorry, this is not what this show is about. They even had a couple of their shills show up. So my point is, for about a year or two, they were just pushing, pushing, pushing these events. Anytime there's one of these events that Good was not asked to be at or the ridiculous time-traveling commandos were not asked to be at, they were just pushing, pushing, pushing. Well, I, I think, we all think, in my circles, that they just lobbied 
you know, and, and got their voice heard in MUFON to the point where somebody in MUFON, decision maker, believes that crap and convinced them that they could probably make some money by featuring these guys. And I think that's what happened there. Um, and, you know, you see the backlash they got for it. You know, a lot of people quit. Um, the uh, the people that make up MUFON, you know, as far as their investigative um, uh, numbers, a lot of them have been unhappy because they feel like that uh, they don't get paid attention to their they're not given resources, but they're asked, you know, how much money can you pump into the, you know, the parent organization, and, and that has turned off a lot of their own people, of course. So, you know, they decided that um, they wanted to. It, it's like this. Um, it's like this. When I was a federal agent, you had guys who really, really liked the work itself. Then you had guys who really, really liked the idea of being a federal agent. These are the guys who loved being able to show that badge, pass their business card around, tell people, yeah, I'm a federal agent, yeah, I'm a federal agent, I'm a federal agent. I mean, I have talked about being a federal agent after I was out of the job, years after I was out of the job, okay? Um, we're talking about guys that when they're on the job. And, and I look at um, these UFO investigators or, or MUFON um, as... You know, there's a bunch of them that it's maybe they like the idea of being a ufologist or involved in ufology more than they like actual, you know, ufology or investigating these things. And I think that's what you've got. You've got a bunch of them that are sincerely dedicated and, and they, they like the investigating, they, they really like researching this, and that's what they're about. And then you have the others, um, it appears the ones running it, that just like to be able to say, hey, we're part of ufology, hey, we're, we're MUFON, hey, we're you know, a big player in this. So they get more out of um, whatever attention they're going to get by doing these things they've been doing. So uh, that's just my opinion, but that's, that's where I see the split. So, in your opinion, what would a secret space program really look like? I mean, just is it a mundane thing or is it fairly advanced? What do you think it would look like? I, I think that um, it's probably well. I'll, I'll tell you exactly what, what I think that its its makeup is. Uh, I think essentially our so-called secret space program is a military organization. It's classified because it is national defense related, okay? And I think it's made up of people probably primarily from the Air Force and the Navy. I would guess that there's only about 10,000 dedicated personnel in the secret space program, in my opinion. Um, you know, NASA has, I think, like 17,000 to do what they do, and um, they're public. And they, you know, they would have a lot more superfluous personnel than the secret space program, you know, within the context as I'm presenting it. I think the technology is like this. I don't think we have Starship Enterprises or big Corellian cruisers like in Star Wars. I think, um, for example, I think an interplanetary vehicle would be pretty much akin to a naval submarine but up in space. And what do I mean by that? You know, you're talking about a self-contained, you know, craft that um, has, you know, a limited number of people, and uh, it's not that big, okay? Um, the technology would be su just sufficiently advanced to be able to do that, probably constructed in or assembled in space. You know, the, uh, the parts would be constructed down on the ground, the, the 
the elements of it, and it would be assembled up in space and activated and put into a commission up there. And, and um, you know, maybe we've got a small fleet of them. Maybe, you know, maybe we've only got one or two. I, you know, I don't know. I'm not in. I'm not close enough to say what that is um, specifically. But uh, that, that's why I think it's that. I think it's probably something that is maybe somewhere what we would call 20 to 50, I'm putting air quotes around 50, 20 to 50 years maybe ahead of what we see um, NASA or, or the military's non-classified aerospace technology doing. Okay? Um, again, it's not something that is Star Trek or, you know, Star Wars with these giant vast ships with 4,000 people aboard and, and everything's like, you know, you slide your... Your your hand across the uh, the dashboard like it's an Apple computer kind of thing. I, no, I I don't think it's it's that advanced. I, I think it's a small um, you know nine or ten thousand people is is kind of small. I think it's elite. They're very selective, um, and uh, that's that's just my opinion. So, is it possible that we have bases on the moon and on Mars? Uh, there, there could be that. There certainly, I think, could be, you know, even if it's just rudimentary, of course, you know, there could be a base on the moon. And, yeah, I've said it in the past, and I'm not about to back away from it now. I think even if we've only done it once, and it was very, very basic, you know, proof of concept, yeah, I don't think it's crazy to think that we might have sent an expedition to Mars already. Um, you know, well, or, oh, well, <laughs> I don't think... I don't. I don't think he'll care because what he does is a separate thing, and I applaud it. You know, I'm. I, that's a whole other discussion. I'm cracking up over the people that are peeing all over the SpaceX launch because they don't like Musk personally. But we live in that era where somebody could do the greatest effing thing for humanity, but if there's something personally that you don't like about him, well, then we can't accept what he's done. That is the most childish idiotic way of of looking at the world and life and yet it's like half the people out there embrace that type of thinking you know um it's astonishing but what musk is doing you know of course with bigelow in the mix there i think bigelow's in my opinion you know a bigger egomaniac um I don't care that, you know, they might be egomaniacs. I don't care that Musk sent a car with the space guy in it and stuff. You know, he was testing the rocket. He was testing to see if it would work. And what it represents is the future of us common folk, you know, down the road, not you and I in our lifetimes, but the common folk having access to space travel, be it uh, as a job or tourism, you know. So it's very important what musk is doing but uh yeah it's a it's a separate thing from what the ssp would be doing what do you think about these new revelations from the new york times you know tom DeLong, bigelow all this stuff that's just kind of come out in the last few months what's your opinion on all that um yeah well i think there is definitely at the top of all this DeLong to the stars academy thing i think there is perception management going on um Yes, I think that's what the CIA guys involved in to the Stars Academy are all about, um, really, ultimately. And um, I think that DeLong is kind of a, uh, he's kind of halfway witting 
at what's going on. I don't think he realizes to what degree he's being used, but I think he's going along with it because he's, you know, it's a great marketing thing he's, he's created. Um, I think that, uh, I, I, I think that Bigelow is probably, you know, being used to some extent, you know, um, he, he feels like he's in with the, with the big boys. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't think he's, on the level that he thinks he is. Uh, the UFO stuff they talked about in the New York Times, you know, that Tic Tac video and stuff, uh, you know, I, uh, uh, Daniel List pointed me to a video, the Goddard video, and it explains what you're actually seeing, that it's the glow of the tail of a, a very, you know, more conventional aircraft, and it's been spun up, um, you know, by various players, including the two the stars, people like Elizondo and stuff, to be some UFO when it's not likely a UFO. So it's a lot of hoo-ha that's getting a lot of attention, and it's, it's um, accomplishing its objective. There's a whole bunch of people who otherwise would be critical of so much CIA guy involvement in ufology and anything to do with this stuff that are, are weirdly drinking the Kool-Aid and embracing um, you know that oh these guys are going to bring disclosure and of course they've embraced the the whole concept of confirmation before disclosure that's their big buzz phrase right now um, it, it's just amazing me um, how people who you know otherwise their critical thinking has gone out the window where this particular group is concerned and you have to ask yourself why um, I don't know the answer to that specifically but um, it's it's a distraction that, um, fortunately, a lot of people are seeing it as such, and hopefully it will not have the deep impact that these kinds of things have had in the past. Walter, where can people contact you, find your presence on the web, and also, mo- most importantly, where can they get all your books? Okay. Well, I uh, pulled all my books from Amazon because they are not good for independent publishers, which I am, you know, in a, you know small small guy writers, so I had to pull all my books from them. And they can only be found now in print on demand. Um, a little bit more expensive than Kindle, but, you know, you get a printed physical book, and that's at lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com. Um, I'm also at, uh, I have a blog, empireofthewheel.blogspot.com. And I'm on Facebook and Twitter and uh, I think Instagram, too. And it's not, but my social media is not SSP Breakaway, you know, you know, 24 hours, seven days a week. It's a mix. Walter, thank you so much for coming on. It's always a pleasure to have you and definitely going to get you back on when your new book comes out. But uh, thank you so much. And, guys, I will be back to close out the Mega Opus Conspiranormal number 200.5 just in a bit. Hello, everyone. Just here to close out the show. If that last part sounded a little bit strange, I recorded that interview with Walter Bosley. And when I'd gone back to listen to the recording, my entire track of my voice was completely cut out. This ended up being a problem between the program that I use here in Studio B called Pamela and Skype. 
So I am switching to another program. So what I had to do was kind of selectively edit the entire conversation and go back and listen to all of my conversation, well, rather one-sided conversation with Walter and remember the questions that I did. So I wrote those down, recorded them, and inserted them. So that's why that sounded so weird. I don't know. Maybe it sounded better. All right. Well, thank you so much, guys, for listening to the 200.5 episode of Conspiranormal. It's been a real blast recording it, snafus and all. And next time, I will be back in the main studio with Rob and hopefully with Luke. And we're going to have the guys from Cruising with Steak on to talk about whatever we're going to talk about. So, guys, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being listeners. And thanks to our Patreons for um, sending us Patreon money. And, uh, guys, we will be back next week on Conspiranormal. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.